All right. Um, good evening. My name is Dave Cronin, city engineer, and I'm here with uh, city staff members Dustin Smith and Josephine Gonzalez. And so we will work alongside uh, Pat Collette, the chair of the MMTC, um, and then uh, work with uh, Adam Weigel uh, for the PTAC uh, joint study session that we're going to have here. Uh, today and this meeting is being recorded and broadcast live on the city's YouTube channel and public access cable channel 25 During the meeting when you're not participating, please mute yourself by clicking on the microphone icon found on the lower left hand side of the zoom menu next to the video icon uh, When you are muted a red line will appear over the icon when your microphone when muting your microphone during the meeting uh, it will make it easier for everyone to hear you'll just have to remember to unmute if and when you want to speak in some cases we may mute or unmute people as needed to minimize distractions during the meeting please remember to state your name and title for the benefit of those listening remotely you can turn your video on and off by clicking on the video icon on the menu for the purposes of this public meeting, please keep your video on when you are participating in the meeting. When you are not participating, it is okay to turn your video off. Just remember to turn your video back on when you are participating. If you are participating by phone, you can click star six to unmute your phone. For those using Zoom, somewhere on your screen, you will see a choice to toggle between speaker and gallery view. Speaker view shows the active speaker. Gallery view tiles all the meeting participants. When you are called on for public comment, please unmute your listening device and state your name before speaking. Um, at the end, the chair will call for in-person public comment. For those who are physically present, staff will direct them to the podium to speak while following social distancing and safety protocols. So all motions will need to be stated clearly. After a motion is made and seconded, staff will call on each member individually to provide their vote. Staff will then need to announce whether the motion carried in the count of the vote. And so that will pertain to our regular meeting, but for our study session tonight, we'll not have any motions, but we will start off by doing some roll call. So we will uh, start by going through the MMTC roll call and then uh, do the PTAC roll, roll, roll call. So um, I believe Josephine, if you're ready, she'll go through uh, for roll call. Evans? Here. Carol Bowen? Nick Kuzmiak? Here. Thomas Allen? Here. Aaron Payton? Here. Patricia Collett? Here. Charlie Bryan? Gregory Chitlow, Dave Cronin, yep, I'm here. <laughs> and Laura, uh, Lauren Freeman. Yep, she's no longer okay, on the board. I so I think you got everyone. Um, Charlie, did we get you? Charlie, are you present? I'm not sure we heard you, but I see you. I see your lips moving, but we can't hear you. So. 
we'll take you as present and we'll uh, keep moving on to the uh, PTAC roll call. I think, um, Adam, are you going through that? Sure. Adam Weigel, Transit and Parking Manager. Uh, Lance Fay. Max Schieber. Mike Wasikowski. Here. Nick Kuzmiak again. Still here. Alan Ackland. Gregory Critchlow. Bill Wilson. August Rudisell. Present. And Freddie Gipp. Present. Is that on our side, Dave? All right. Um, thanks, Adam. Um, I guess I'll go ahead and turn it over to the chair, uh, Pat Collette of the MMTC, just to introduce this study session item and then get going. Uh, thanks, Dave. This is Pat Collette of MMTC chair, and tonight we're doing the joint study session with, uh, with PTAC to take a look. Mm. Peter dictates to his computer. Okay. To... Um, to look at the um, the um, designs for the um, multimodal trans transfer facilities at both the uh, locations with uh, um, the downtown transfer center and the multimodal transfer center. So um, we're happy to to have the opportunity to spend this time with with PTAC and and uh, others to um, uh, to take a look at these designs and uh, to provide input. So uh, I should turn that over to. Um, Adam next, and or uh, yep, take yeah. away, Adam. or Michael, would you like to um, to say say a few words as we kick off? Uh, yes, I would. Uh, I'm Mike Wazikowski, the uh, chair of PTAC. Uh, thank you, everyone, for attending today. Um, mainly, I want to spend some time just framing what we're doing in this uh, study session. Uh, in particular, I have some expertise in that I trained as an Army analyst with an agency that specializes in assessing alternatives and figuring out how to spend a limited pile of money. Um, so I wanted to give everyone some food for thought on what you should be thinking about while you are making comments, reviewing our uh, plans, and making suggestions for the future. Uh, we need to focus on the most distinguishing features between the many options. We all know that there's a lot of things that are similar between all of these and hitting on those is not really gonna be relevant for us as we're trying to distinguish between what makes one option better than another. So I want you to use your personal experience, your perspective of the world to think of what those features might be. And I want you to ask, city staff questions that help you elicit those features so that we know what we're looking at. In particular, if something is quantifiable, like say the number of parking spaces we're losing, let's think about what are a minimum acceptable number of parking spots that you're willing to lose and what would be the goal of what to, you would ideally want to lose. And then remember that when we're in our upcoming committee meetings in July, we will actually do the business of prioritizing those features, ranking all the different options, and finally voting on what do we want to recommend the city commission choose when they uh, hold a meeting. Uh, I don't have the exact date, but near the end of July, I would expect. 
And that's all I have. Thank you very much. All right, thank you for that, Mike. Uh, this is Adam Weigel, Transit and Parking Manager. Um, just briefly, uh, yeah, thank you all for getting together, having a joint session for the first time. I think we expect some good discussion here. Um, this has been a project of a long, a long time coming, been operating out of a temporary location for um, close to eight years now. So we're excited to move towards something more permanent and, um, and are excited about you all giving us some feedback on the, the first concept iterations that we have um, and certainly expect your feedback and, and others to influence um, how those concepts might shift as we move towards July and look towards um, a final recommendation from, from you all. So uh, with that, I'll uh, introduce Tony Kellen from Wendell, um, who's our consultant that came on board early this spring to help us with design throughout this year. Um, and he, can, he and his team can help walk us through uh, the materials that you all have and and hopefully leave plenty of time for discussion and questions so with that tony i'll let you take it away okay thanks adam um do we have a powerpoint that we're going to be putting up uh for this presentation as well i'm happy to screen share if that makes it easier yes and scott neal um our architect on the project was also uh on the call but he's not hearing any audio so unless no, I got it to finally work here. So, okay. Scott's our principal architect on the product project, and um, was also with us in Lawrence uh, during that uh, four days when we started our project design. So, I guess with that, let's let's jump right into the the presentation, Adam. Okay, we'll go to the second slide. Um, Adam wanted to give a little bit of background for where this project has been um, prior to Wendell coming on site here in 2021. So maybe you want to just run through that real quick, Adam. Sure. Just briefly, to uh, this is Adam Weigel, Transit and Parking Manager, just to characterize for the group um, kind of where we came from, a couple of studies in 2014 and 2018 that certainly got us um, as a community already thinking about what elements we would want and need in transit transfer facilities and where those might be located. Um, and then more recently, uh, just wanted to offer the variety of things we've tried to do um, as much as possible to reach out to the community, um, to downtown businesses, and uh, kind of lay the groundwork for uh, there being plenty of discussion about this before we get to, to making a decision with city commission. Okay. Um you notice on that prior slide, we have a process called immersion and we were there Monday the 19th through the 22nd. We had eight stakeholder meetings um, in addition to, I think, three client meetings with the city and KU and two public meetings as well over those three days. So we had a busy week, um, collected a lot of input uh, and a lot of uh, comments from folks about what was important to them. Uh, it's a very important part of the process. And um, we have kind of gelled that down on the next screen. It's really the kind of the highlights that rose to the top that were um, the most heard comments. And that's really in regard to the Bob Billings site, the traffic flow on Bob Billings and Crestline with events and just, you know, the, the state of affairs over there. Um, pedestrian movements on and off the site. And within that site, it's uh, quite a large pro uh, project, project, project area, excuse me. Um, 
also there's some facilities, some buildings on that site that um, we took a look at how they interact with and and uh, may you know work or not work with the site. Um, heard a lot of things from the passengers and the bus drivers about passenger amenities, Wi-Fi, charging stations uh, for phones, wheelchairs, having water fountains, bike facilities, being screened from the elements. Uh, a lot of things that aren't present today in the temporary uh, situation across from the library. Um, for bus operators, really important for them to have amenities. Just the basics really is what we're looking at uh, in the in the downtown a, a bit more, you know, place for, you know, nice restrooms, uh, food items, uh, places to take a break, that type of thing. Um, some, you know, maintenance folks uh, gave input on, you know, having a place to store some of those very low quantity things that can be fixed right on site that doesn't take a bus out of service. Um, a big focus on sustainable site and building elements, looking at solar, um, looking at the natural environment out there with bioswales and how we handle water on site and so forth. Um, and then wanting to, you know, listen to the neighborhood, the concerns with how can we design this so that it's uh, the least impact on the neighborhood as far as light, noise, uh, lighting, all those types of things. And then taking into consideration the connectivity with the university, with the shuttles, with Greyhound, uh, ride sharing and other multimodal options that would happen in the future. So we had a lot of comments. We, we took comments live from people on a whiteboard. Um, and so those there will be a report that has all those attached for reading. But these are kind of the ones that rose to the top. Downtown, of course, we heard a lot about uh, parking loss and the type of parking that we were replacing or going to be replaced short term, long term. Um, having a, a safe, welcoming space for downtown that serves the not only the downtown, but also the uh, passengers as well, having some basic amenities, uh, primarily for the operator at this point, restrooms, having seating, um, information areas, bike facilities, and basic protection from the weather. Um, and then doing our project in such a way where, you know, when we're looking at parking lots and, and being adjacent to that, that we uh, have the ability or the city has the ability if they want to do a multi-story development at some point in the future, that those two can work together uh, in tandem. Uh, we hear a lot about the farmer's market as well um, over on, I want to say Massachusetts, not Massachusetts, um, New Hampshire. I almost have the city down. So we can go over to the, go to the next slide. Unless there's any questions or comment on that, we can just keep uh, flowing through here. Um, our mission was to come up with three options um, for the intermodal, or excuse me, the multimodal as well as downtown. So with a limited time here, we'll just run through these. The basic program was uh, 10 bus slots for the bus system, two for the inner city and Greyhound. So a total of 12 bus slots. We settled on um, what would be referred to as a sawtooth configuration. And the, the main feature of that is, is that buses can come and go from any slot at any time uh, without, you know, with complete autonomy. Um, having a, a basically a canopy area that covers uh, the elements again for folks um, and a multimodal facility, taking a look at what we all wanted to have happening in there. Um, 
there was a consideration for up to 5,000 square feet. We think uh, a right size facility to begin with is 4,000 square feet. So um, that's what we think you need. Um, and we addressed the, the need for 15 parking spaces, a ride hail area for pickup and drop off, um, opportunity for bike racks, uh, bike lockers. And um, so those are you know the basic um, design requirements for the site. Um, as far as options as options on, on number one here, we're using the uh, natural lower area for a bioswale drainage area, fitting in a parking lot in between Bob Billings and the bus platform, and then uh, putting the bus facility or the multimodal facility building in between the, the pad and the drainage area adjacent to the parking lot. So that was one option. We also were looking at, uh, it's always a good practice operationally to have a second way to get off of the site. So you're gonna see on all three of these options, um, a long drive uh, through the back of the property. And you know, as part of the feedback, we're, we're hearing about that and uh, maybe making some changes in that regard. Um, as far as disadvantages, um, there's a you know close proximity between the vehicle access points, the multimodal and uh, the facility platform. Um, so it's it's close, it's central centrally located. The riders don't need to leave the platform for transfers. Um, and we make the multimodal facility a visual focal point from from that corner of Bob Billings and Crestline. So that's option one. Option two is a variation. Yeah, it was so smooth I couldn't even tell that it changed. <laughs> option two is a variation on um, where the multi multimodal facility is. One of the characteristics of this site is that it is it does slope considerably from that corner as you go up. So trying to find um, a way to find the perfect uh, area where you have the least amount of soil removal and fill. And so that does impact all these options more than what you would think. But in this case, what we've done is we've we've changed the um, exit for the bus to be able to go out into Bob Billings closer to that island. And we've made an entrance exit for the parking segregated from the bus operations with a long drive across the back of the property to meet up again with uh, the opening in the road there. The idea and both option one and two is to not have any uh, removal needed of the facilities that are there uh, from the campus, those two metal buildings. Um, so a slight variation there. Um, disadvantages of this is that it's a little bit longer walk for the uh, people using the platform. Um, bus drivers need to leave the platform and go a little bit farther to you know access their amenities, uh, restrooms, and so forth. And the multimodal facility is back and away and has less of a presence or a focal point off of Bob Billings. Um, advantages is again the bus circulation again remains separated from vehicle access. We like uh, we don't like to we we know that's a good uh, safe thing to do. You don't want to mix the two different size vehicles. Um, and then we have added in this one a, a small acceleration lane, which we've talked with the city engineer a bit on, on our previous meeting the last week. Same pretty 
same identical design requirements. So then we go to option three. And option three is um, a little larger uh, platform. And we put the multimodal facility right on the center of the platform. And again, we have the parking configuration, the exit of the exiting of the buses um, are about the same as option two. Uh, that way you have two different routes to depart the site and you can efficiently get the fleet back into service. And if you ever have, you know, road construction on one or the other, you have you know, a way to still be able to get out on the site. Um, so pretty much the same um, with the exception of what we do with the building. So Adam, time-wise, do we want to just keep moving through to the downtown or do we want to take a stop and, and look at these first or how do you want to proceed? with this group. This is Adam Weigel, Transit and Parking Manager. Uh, I'll ask Pat and Mike, do you have a preference on, just for the sake of us, um, at least being able to show everything before comments? Do you want us to keep moving through or would you like to comment here before we talk about downtown? I would suggest let's go through the downtown options as well. Okay. I, I agree with that also. Okay, thank you, Madam Chair and Michael. Um, okay, so going to downtown, we have a three options downtown as well. Um, we actually show two different options for uh, Vermont between 8th and 9th. Um, this, again, um, for our project requirements, we looked at five sawtooth bus bays. Again, the ability for a vehicle to come in or out independent of every other route. Um, a small area on the bottom of the drawing there you can see for ride hail. Um, can you see my cursor on the screen? We don't need to, I just wanted to, everybody's probably muted, but so. Um, I cannot, at least. Okay, thank you. I think we'll, I'll just keep speaking to the drawings and people can, can look. On the bottom of the drawing, you'll see there's a ride hail area. There's a bicycle parking area. We have some uh, community green space down there. We're thinking of the connectivity um, between the bus platforms and the downtown Massachusetts street. Um, we take the parking lot, we do a, a right in and right out only for that parking lot. And then we improve the uh, exit at the top of the drawing. We put a cycle track behind. So as we come into the parking lot, we're displacing some of the parking um, for the island, we have bus shelters for each location. We have small canopy uh, sheltering over the top of the vehicle loading uh, and unloading area. Uh, we have a small uh, 200, I believe, 80 square foot driver amenity building, which is primarily restrooms, um, drinking fountain, that type of thing. And um, this option, you know, basically creates a nice uh, flow of the cycle traffic you know, behind that site and transition back out on the other side. Um, as far as impacts, we have a loss of 18 metered spaces and 40 parking lot spaces, so net 58 loss, 17 trees come out, um, and a relocation of the parking lot access to the south, which I already mentioned. I see that's out of the box there a bit. Um, the advantages, we, we create the community green space on the corner um, we have the dedicated cycle track. Um, we keep the parallel uh, parking on the street. 
um, you'll see in the next option where we where we do a variation on that. Uh, with this, pedestrians do not have to cross the bus or traffic flow to get to and from the platform, but we do provide a mid-block, a tabletop crosswalk for those that want to cr uh, cross mid-block. Mid and Tony? Yes, sir. Just the, um, you know, on the existing trees, those, those are the ones that are affected for perfect um, bus geometries and, and things. Okay. So it doesn't mean that um, right now those are affected, but it doesn't mean they wouldn't be replaced and or um, possibly things. Can... Right. I just want to clarify that sometimes it get lost in translation. We just say we're. But we are we are affecting 17 trees, but the hope is that maybe some of that can be mitigated and uh, and outright replaced if needed. Right, and that was Scott Neal that was speaking. If I forgot to introduce him properly at the beginning, Scott is the project architect that is really the. Well, you did just fine, Tony. You're doing great. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm trying to you know there's a lot of information to present, so I'm trying to just keep moving. So. Um, disadvantages as the bus operators do have to travel quite a ways on that pad to get to an amenity, but in a limited space like that, that's, that's really, um, the best layout for it. Uh, we have a limited ride hail area on the bottom there. We have four slots for that. Um, and we have some platform activity that's mixed with sidewalk. If we want to look at that as a disadvantage, not necessarily, but we would say that could be a disadvantage. Um, all right, so that's 1A. I think we have a cross-section next. And so basically, the way this looks, you're keeping the parallel parking on the opposite side of the street. You still have your middle turn lane. You still have your southbound and northbound driving lanes. You have the bus uh, uh, in the sawtooth area. And so your curb to curb um, is... I think this is throwing me off because I think this is not our the, the newest uh, width dimensions here, potentially, but I mean, I guess maybe it is. I'm sorry. I take that back. 55 feet from curb to curb on this. The notable on this is that you, you'll see in the next iteration that you have less space for the platform. Uh, we're at 27 feet, 10 inches um, for that platform area for the shelters, the circulation, the sidewalk, and so forth. And so the next variation that we're going to go to, which is 1B, um, has is essentially the same option. And uh, the distinguishing feature is, is we uh, eliminate the center turn lane and we add diagonal parking, parking on the other side of the street. So we end up with a loss of 39 meter spaces and, and 40 parking lot spaces, but we add 37 angle spaces for a net loss of 42. Um, that's really the only difference and uh, a lot of the same advantages and disadvantages. If you go to the next slide, Adam, with that cross section, you could see we, we lose five feet. So we add around five feet to the angled street parking um, and our platform goes down from 27 feet 10 to 22 feet 10 inches in the, uh, on the right hand side there. The cycle track remains at 10 feet. Um, we have heard, you know, some feedback already that uh, diagonal parking or angled street parking is is maybe not preferred or not something that we want to start 
but we wanted to show this as an option as in regard to uh, how we could lessen the impact of the parking impacts there. Our next option uh, goes down the street on Vermont between 10th and 11th. And now we start getting into a, a more constrained site uh, in order to fit the five uh, platform uh, spots in. Um, we have to use pretty much use most of the parking lot. Um, and I know we have an arrow that shows ride hail there for those of you that are, are looking, but really that's we're gonna that's really business parking. We don't need all those spaces for ride hail, but we could have a few spots in the center there that would do that. But most of that parking would be parallel uh, parking for businesses and access from the alley. Um, again, same five bays, uh, same canopy bus shelter configuration. In this in this uh, iteration, the driver operator room is really convenient for a restroom break. I mean, really, it is there, you know, when the drivers are out in service, when they get back to that station, that's really the opportunity for them to get out of the seat and use a restroom and so forth. So that's an important building, but that it's a little better situated for them. Um, the disadvantages, the impact includes the whole park, whole long-term parking lot uh, when we down here between 10th and 11th. Uh, we have buses and cars sharing the same entries and exits um, that is a disadvantage in our opinion safety wise uh, and then passengers have to cross bus traffic um, to get to the drop off right hail whether it's an uber taxi whatever you might have so that's our two first two options uh, two variations on a theme between eighth and ninth and then this one on tenth and eleventh and the other option that we looked at was on uh, New Hampshire, right across from the farmer's market um, or near the farmer's market. I don't know if it's directly across from farmer's market, but very near there. Uh, and again, um, because of what we had to do, there really just wasn't a good option to do this without using the whole lot again. So we have a similar uh, customer parking in the alley uh, a few uh, ride hail spots right out on the street on uh, New Hampshire. And so we're lo looking at a loss of four metered spaces. We have 86 parking lot spaces in this lot. Uh, 14 parallel spaces are added off the alley to the back. So we have a net loss of 76 and 12 trees that are impacted. But again, as Scott said, we, we try to add some of that back too. Um, there's quite a bit of an elevation change between New Hampshire and this parking lot. So in order to make the breakover angles, which essentially means when you have a long bus with a long wheelbase in order to go up over the curb into the lot, we need to do a fair amount of grading in order to make that work and not bottom out. Um, and so this site was a little bit difficult that way too. So that's one of the disadvantages cost-wise for this site. Um, a lot of pedestrian crossing on the street again. Um, we do have, um, let's see, advantages again, you know, the bus operator facility is right on the site, um, closer, you know, access for them. Businesses do get some dedicated parking loading areas behind them there in the alley. Um, and it is a good, it does have a good proximity to Massachusetts Street, which 
produces a lot of activity. And there is a natural pathway between there. We can see the trees sticking up between um, those uh, buildings. So that essentially is our three downtown options. Um, so what is our next slide, Adam? Okay, this is just the project next step. So, um, so Michael mentioned 713 is the net, is the anticipated uh, city commission meeting. So we'll be working as we go forward to that. But we, I guess at this point, we'd like to hear your feedback on uh, the options. This is Adam Weigel, Transit and Parking Manager. I'm happy to flip back to whatever slide if folks want to talk about a particular concept. This, this is Pat Collette, an MTC chair. Um, maybe it'd be helpful, I think, uh, maybe to go back to the to the first set of alternatives on the um, transfer facility so we can maybe talk about that site uh, that site first and then the downtown side. Does that make sense? And I had, um, well, I have some questions, but I'll, I'll start it off in terms of, you know, when I participated in the one of the stakeholder meetings, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, the pedestrian um, interaction with the site and, and you know, looks like, you know, you paid a lot of attention to that in terms of talking about advantages and disadvantages. But I noticed in one of them, it said, um, I think in the in the third one, it said the um, pedestrian crosses bus at the turn, but it seemed like that's happening at in all of the three options. Am I, um, could you maybe talk about the traffic flow just a little bit more and, um, um, whether that's really true at all three sites or if we're, if I'm missing something different in terms of that traffic flow. I think um, that what we're, I think what we're talking about is that it's happening during the turn. So the, the bus is coming around that corner there mm -hmm. and you, you tend to be, you know, it's, it's, you know, you, when you're doing it, when you're going straight through, it's, Oh, it's there. E easier. Okay. To, yeah. So okay. that, I think that's what we're talking about. Okay. I thought you were talking about it, the, you know, as they exit the exit the site and as they come onto the site, that's true also with the, um, you know, with anybody who would be on the, on the um, shared use path or, um, okay. Right. Yeah. So one of uh, a common accident with a, uh, with a public transit bus with the big window corners, the blind spots as you're making a right turn into a crosswalk on a green light and somebody also ha also has the crossing capability and you just lose the person for just a second, you know, in one of those corner frames of your windshield. So it just makes it less safe when they're doing a turning movement to have people crossing at the point of a turn. And one, one, one other thing to point out, when a facility is located on the platform, one of the, one of the building blocks is um, it takes more real estate because you're building the bus pattern around the building, so it's wider. But you also don't, um, if somebody needs to use the facility during a transfer, they're not crossing buses. 
if the building is not located on the island, it's more efficient because it uses less footprint. However, people Um, so if they have to use the bathroom, if they want to go to vending, if they want um, uh, to speak to someone, then they they have to, they will be crossing. So uh, you're always going to have to exit the island. It's just which is more times. <clears throat> and Tony's right about the, about the turn, but all of these are uh, clockwise circulation. <clears throat> um, so, um, uh, so those... Uh, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. Um, in this option here on option three, um, we have clockwise. Um, so that is one thing to, um, that we'd want to train uh, drivers on is that that is a, that is a right-hand turn. So we just want to make sure they're really clearing um, the path as they're turning. Pat, you're muted. The second question I had, um, the, the comment about the um, uh, the view of the facility on the site, can you speak to that just a little bit in terms of uh, the, you know, pros and cons of that and, you know, what people would be seeing from from uh, Bob Billings and, you know, how, how you see that as a, as a disadvantage, I guess. Want to speak to that, Scott, or would you like me to? Um, for which for which option is a disadvantage? Well, I, I think I, I can maybe just summarize my comments that I made, and, and that is that um, we saw the multimodal facility as a focal point here between the natural environment, the bioswale, and the corner that it could be like a signature piece. And um, when we looked at sticking it behind. Um, the island behind the parking lot off of Bob Billings, then you, you just we just think you have an opportunity with that facility to um, do something, you know, really nice that makes a good statement, both for the city and the university. Uh, and so you're less able to do that when you stick it back behind all the activity. I think that's what we were what we were really focusing on in calling that a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I would call it, you know, as aesthetically speaking, the building, um, the building and the canopies are going to work together. And, and we have done some, I think, some decent looking um, canopies. And one could argue the canopies actually um, really just by square footage really become the more dominant thing. They're very tall. They have to be, you know, you know usually 14 feet clear. So they'll be a focal point. Um, so it's not as much an aesthetic issue. It's just the position of your main asset, which is the which is the building itself. So obviously, moving it to the rear of the site, it won't be as visible. But it doesn't mean this won't look spectacular, regardless of the options. Okay, that that's really what I was getting at. Is it <laughs> would it be really a you know not nearly as attractive if. if if it were placed on the platform as opposed to separate from that. So it's hard to, it's hard to visualize, you know, in the, in the 3d right now for me, but uh, yeah. Great. Right. Thank you. Other questions. looks like uh, Charlie. Can you hear me? Can you 
I hear a faint voice, but not. Charlie, it came in earlier when you, during roll call, it came in for just a second. So it, uh, and then it, but it's back to the very light um, volume now. I can just barely hear you. Well, let's move on to Steve and uh, maybe see if we can. Uh, thank you, Pat. This is Steve Evans, Transportation Commissioner. It's um, essentially the first time most of it is, including myself, have seen this. So commenting is a bit challenging. Um, I do have some kind of basic questions. Um, one of them would be, how long do the typical users take to transfer? And that would be for both the facility out here on uh, Bob Billings and the downtown locations. Is that like a 15 minute window or does it vary? Adam Weigel, Transit and Parking Manager. I can speak to that a little bit. Um, our, our current setup, uh, it, it varies somewhat. I think some people are one bus to another, depending on time of day or which routes have a little more time built into them. There are some that tend to have 15 minutes or so. Um, where, where someone would have about that long before they'd be able to hop on the next bus. That's probably about the threshold. There's not too much more than that, um, unless you just miss your bus and then you have that 30 or 60 minute wait, depending right. on the route. Yeah, I was just thinking in terms of where the multimodal facility and the toilets and the other amenities may be. Um, seems like functionally in the middle of the buses would make some sense if you're in a hurry. Um, on the other hand, um, uh, I kind of like the aesthetics part of it, of maybe it being kind of a premier landmark that you would see from Crestline and uh, Bob Billings. Um, basically, the ride hail, is that like for Uber and, uh, and taxis, whatever? Is that what that's intended to function for? It can be that, um, it can also be um, somebody dropping their their student off or somebody dropping yeah. off, you know, um, a person to access the bus system for a job, that type of thing as well. So okay. it could be multi, multiple uses and features. Okay, and a um, couple more, uh, who's the parking for the 15 parking spaces? Oh, Adam Weigel, Transit and Parking Manager. Uh, that space is uh, primarily for staff, but we do plan on one component of the facility out here being a, a small meeting space where there could be advisory committee meetings or small city public meetings, that type of thing. So some accommodation of um, people being able to access the site in that way. Um, so it's not intended to be long-term parking if, if someone needed to... Right. Um, you know, a student park there and then ride, ride the bus all day and, and come back at the end. I yeah. think we'll, we've, we've got more work to do to figure out exactly what our control looks like there. If we are um, using personnel to monitor the lot or technology, what that could be, but it's not intended to just be like an open public parking lot. Yeah. It's not a commuter lot by any means. Okay. Um, I, I think at some point I want to go through, um, we don't have a whole lot of time left here. I want to give other people a chance, but just in terms of how the buses circulate, what direction they go, where do they come in, where do they go out, how does all that work? Um, 
that's probably not an easy two-minute <laughs> discussion, but uh, it would be interesting both in terms of, um, you know, kind of uh, three-dimensionally in time, how does all this look and how does it work? Um, might be helpful to get to, um, you know, some better comments down the road. So yeah. um, I'll stop there and I can pass the baton to Charlie if he's back on. Do you have annotation turned on, Adam, so they could see that? Yeah, it doesn't look like he's back on. Are there, are there other questions? Hi, this is August Budisell, PTAC member. I had one because I prefer option two or three. I'm concerned about the timing of Iowa and Bob Billings since it is a federal highway. I know the traffic lights do give uh, preference to the north southbound traffic. And so option one looks like it would be heavily influenced by that intersection. And so I just want to know if there was any look into the timing of those lights, which would affect buses exiting onto eastbound Bob Billings. Right. I, th I think what I can say is that, you know, we've had considerable amount of discussion. Uh, that's a you know, good point that you bring up um, on, you know, acts, you know, ingress and egress of the site. And um, I think if we go to option two, um, we are looking at an option here that, um, Scott, maybe you can draw for me since I can't, um, or whoever was drawing. <laughs> on there we're looking at an option we're looking at potentially sliding this multimodal facility up into this area here and so we don't have this we don't have buses like you're talking about in three over uh closer to iowa um and so we did have some discussion with the ku city advisory committee when we looked at that so that's something that's being considered i think it's fair to say that um that's a good observation on your part Okay, thank you. Nick Kuzmiak, MMTC. I had a whole bunch of questions. I can try to run through them very quickly, but I know I would bet a lot of people probably have some interesting comments on this. So um, I'll try to keep it brief and to the point, but we'll see what happens. So that cut me off if, I, if I'm running too long here. Um, All right, well, it, it, Nick, just real quickly, uh, this is Hecklet. MTC um, chair, and we did talk about the possibility of extending this session just a little bit if, if you know, if we really need that extra time. So when we get closer to six o'clock, we can, um, you know, call for everyone's agreement or not, or not and it's extending it for another 15 minutes or so. So that would give, give us just a little bit more time if we need it. Thank you, Smiak, MMTC. Sounds good. Thanks. Um, all right, here we go. So for the bios whale, I'm assuming that this is basically serving the, the function that a detention pond or a retention pond would generally do. Um, I guess I'd be kind of curious if you're envisioning something more like a constructed wetland or more like a rain garden. But just to put it out there, this is pretty out of left field, but um, putting the dots together, um, the Lawrence Skateboard Association, or maybe it's just Skate Association, has been lobbying pretty hard for additional skate park infrastructure. And um, uh, much to the extent of even submitting a project proposal for um, the recently released CIP. So there's a need for skate parks. There's also a need for detention. Um, 
there is demonstrated success in other countries, at least, um, and actually Texas as well, which may as well be another country, um, by making uh, a skate park also a detention pond. As long as you sink it enough and you design it appropriately for the amount of water you expect, you can actually do both at once. So since a lot of people who skate tend to be on the younger side, um, <laughs> I mean, back when I was 16, I thought I was invincible also. Um, it may be that co-locating a skate park facility next to a bus station may be a pretty good uh, choice of location. So I'm, I'm sure that's way outside the scope of this particular thing, but you know, it may be good to keep in mind if we can design something maybe more flexible that in the future could be converted to a skate park. Just an idea. Um, second thing was, I think it is a really good idea to co-locate the parking lot for this facility with that existing KU lot, um, partly to minimize impervious surface area that you're creating, um, but, but also because it just kind of seems like it makes more efficient use of resources and you have to go into that hill a little bit less, which is good. I would say on the canopy, it'd be really good to extend that wherever possible. For option three, the canopy is kind of right over each bus stop and also over the facility, but for some reason not right between them, which looks like a two foot gap. It seems like that could easily be filled in. I don't expect the canopy to run the entire length of the, the island because that's a pretty huge island, but um, this applies to the downtown ones as well. And I think this kind of goes to the, the point of equity in transportation decisions where, you know, if you're in a car, you're shielded from the rain at all times. And if you're in the bus, yeah, sure. But cars tend to be able to park a lot closer to their destination than buses. So, you know, if people who have to use the bus are forced to, you know, walk decent distances in the rain and the snow, blazing sun, um, I just think it might be a good idea to try to incorporate a little bit more shading and weather protection, if possible, if the budget allows, um, especially downtown. What else? Um, bike path versus on-street parking. So I think for the downtown options, um, it's it's nice to have the idea of a dedicated bike path, but Vermont Street is a 20 mile an hour speed limit. And I mean, at that point, a bike almost goes 20 miles an hour as well. And as a cyclist who often goes down uh, downtown, I'm not entirely sure it's necessary to separate bikes and traffic at this rate, um, especially if the street's gonna be made even slower by the addition of the buses. So I think it, it might actually be relatively safe to keep the bikes just on the street. Um, as Previous experience, I used to live in Austin and there was a relatively long, sort of an informal bus transfer center right near the campus of the university and the bike lane went on the outside of it. And man, the opportunities for collision there weren't crazy. Um, the amount of times that somebody leaving the bus or entering the bus um, had no idea that a bike was in the lane, it happened almost every day. So I'm not sure I would recommend that placement exactly if we need a bike lane. Second one is, um, is there any possibility for public restrooms downtown? It sounds like that was included in the feedback. And I think this speaks again to the kind of equity and dignity thing. Um, if you have the money to go and buy a drink at a bar and then use the restroom, that's all fine and good. But if we're gonna be this far from the library, it would be good to have some kind of restroom. And besides, we don't have one downtown anyway, and that's kind of a huge gap. So um, just something to consider. Next one up is, uh, for the right turn only on 9th Street to enter the parking lot on the south side, I would highly recommend placing some kind of bollard or concrete barrier because there's a lot of bonehead drivers out there. It'd be good to have some kind of actual physical barrier to make sure people know exactly how they can enter that. Uh, in terms of choices of parking lot, I think removing the long-term parking is probably not a great move. During the recent downtown master plan process, um, there was a lot of concern from downtown employees over the existence and the availability of downtown parking. Some appear to not know 
that it exists, but it does, in fact. And taking away those spots would be probably a big hit to downtown employments, um, I guess, to their ease of access. So if you take it away, at least make sure that it will be, I guess, made new somewhere else. And what else? Um, the final thing, and then I'll shut up for a while. Um, I would hope at some point we can maybe consider the possibility of closing off one of these blocks to through vehicle traffic. Once again, bringing up the recent downtown master plan, there was a lot of discussion given to the fact that there really is no public gathering space downtown. The library yard is kind of the best bet that we have, but there's really no place that's kind of a public square. And yeah, this would be a much longer version of a rectangle, but there may be some opportunity to make this not a through street, make it only for buses, bikes, and pedestrians. And I realize that would maybe have uh, circulation issues in terms of cars, but it is a grid. There's always another way. So I, I, I wouldn't let that stop us. Um, and finally, having facilities on the transfer island is much better for safety, I think, especially if you're trying to make your transfer and you got to run, or if you're an operator and you got to hit, hit, hit the bathroom pretty quick. Um, people are going to be maybe using that crosswalk a little bit more recklessly than they might otherwise. So just for safety concerns, I feel like having the station on the island is probably the best bet. And that's it. Thanks. Hi, August Rudisell, PTAC member. I just want to jump in real quick and echo what Nick said, because those, those were my only concerns. The removal of downtown parking was, would, to me, would be one of the biggest factors that city commission would come up against. Um, just because, like he said, downtown employees are pretty vocal on social media about the loss of parking or the difficulties in, in long-term parking. And so I just wanted to echo and, and repeat what Nick said about that. So. This is Adam Weigel, Transit and Parking Manager. I will touch on that for the group. Um, that we do have some pretty good data coming through some of our new parking technology that we have. Um, LPR vehicles and different things help us see some utilization. Um, so we've been gathering some of that data. I don't unfortunately have it in a great graphical way to tell a, a quick story to you all. Um, but I will say on this block in particular, the um, long-term spaces, which are on street metered spots are very well utilized. So um, taking those away, we, we will have to figure out um, how, how that gets replaced and where it gets replaced if some of the two hours convert into long-term because um, those uh, two hours tend to be less utilized um, throughout the day. So, so those are things we're very aware of and heard a lot from the business community. Certainly don't want to um, discount the importance, um, especially in this block of that long-term long-term parking. Yeah, and I was just going to piggyback on, um, I can't comment on the detention pond um, uh, concept with uh, the bike park, but I think uh, a critical uh, need for this is going to be detention of some type. Um, and so we're, you know, we're going to be struggling with that for space, especially with as much as this site slopes. But as far as the co-locating of the parking lot, Nick, I think that's a astute observation. I think I, I kind of hinted that some of the feedback we had in a prior meeting last week um, does just that. It, it gets the parking up and gets the facility up closer to Bob Billings and gets us farther out of the hillside. Um, so point noted. Um, the sheer the sheer thing with canopies is, is when we have that building in the center of the island. It's such a huge space um, that you know, with your weather and with what we'd be trying to cover with the continuous covering, it um, it just gets so expensive that I don't know that it's that budget a lot would allow it. 
Um, a similar thing, even with downtown, um, uh, in a, even in the option 1A, trying to put a continuous canopy that entire length, just because of the nature of how much distance you need for sawtooth, um, also is, is cost prohibitive. So what we try to do is, is get the coverings, you know, where they're waiting, you know, for the bus and try to do there's some things you can do with windscreen, things like that. Um, but all good comments. Um, we've got um, a, a good civil engineering firm, HG, from uh, from Kansas City on our team. And um, we'll definitely take another look or keep looking as we go through the next stages of planning on the bike on the cycle track on whether or not it makes sense to put that behind there or not. Uh, that's I just some of the follow-up comments I had. This is Pat Collette, uh, Chair Aaron, TC. Um, on that cycle track, I'm assuming that the reason for that is because of the of the bus movements out on the on the street and and protecting bicycles and also making it easier for the buses to to pull out. Um, you know, not have bicycles in a blind spot there. I mean, it seems to me the cycle track is is a. When I saw that, I thought that was a really great idea. So, um, I guess you know. I mean, Nick, it sounds like you've had some experience with that, but it seems like being able to avoid the the buses uh, pulling in and out in that space would would make a lot of sense. So, uh, in terms of safety for for cycles going through there. Well, I. Okay, go ahead, Nick. I was going to say we can, you know, there's things we can do with separation between the cycle track and the shelters and the platform too that minimize uh, pedestrian bike conflicts. But the greater um, goal of the cycle track is, as uh, Chair mentioned, which is to eliminate those interactions between buses pulling in and out um, as as cycles are, you know, bikes are traveling along that lane. I should probably clarify when I was advocating for just keeping the bikes on the street, what I should have added is that if the center turn lane could be reconfigured to just be a southbound, sorry, a northbound travel lane, then the bikes wouldn't have to be in the same lane as the buses. And that turn lane is pretty much superfluous during that block anyway. So um, I think with some modifications, it could still be made safe for bikes to be on the street. Uh, this this is uh, Pat Collette. Uh, we are at six o'clock. Is there um, uh, is there a consensus to extend the meeting, uh, the study session, for another fifteen minutes, or do people pretty much have their questions answered? I'm happy with the discussion we've had, but uh, willing to listen if anyone else still has outstanding things to ask about. This is Adam Weigel, Transit and Parking Manager. I just also want to offer for the group, this uh, topic will be the bulk of our discussion at PTAC um, a week from today. Um, so the discussion will continue there if, if you'd like to join in as well. We haven't talked about that being another joint meeting um, uh, officially, but just something to consider. Great, thank you. And, and also, um, Adam, I think that um, you had mentioned something about you know, because of the timing of this, and we, you know, we were in a time constraint, you know, that we have these images of the sites, but that there would be uh, some other um, views of the site, like, uh, you know, more 3D imaging and that kind of thing. Is that, is that in the 
would we expect to see that at any point before the July, before our July meeting, or, um, or should we expect to, to be responding to these plans uh, that we've seen tonight? So Adam Weigel, Transit and Parking Manager. I wouldn't expect that we'll get 3D imagery um, leading up to commission, but certainly that um, the input we gather tonight, and we have a couple of public meetings this Wednesday, um, if PTAC next Monday, uh, there'll be continued discussion internally and, and bus operators have these images as well. So there'll be um, iteration on what you see before you now. I think there'll, there'll be adjustments made to respond to some of the concerns. Um, and as, as soon as it's appropriate for me to get those back out, I, I will and hopefully there's lead time before the next MMTC and PTAC meetings when when we would be looking for recommendations um, so that there'd be time to digest and ask questions and respond to those. Uh, this is Steve Evans, if I could just, um, um, for me, I've seen um, plenty tonight so far, my own personal opinion. I gotta be real honest though, uh, if I were to make a recommendation on either of these locations, I would probably need to know a whole lot more to be comfortable doing that. And um, I think um, to the extent and the, the people that I'd like to hear more from would be the actual transit users and the uh, bus drivers and get feedback from them because, you know, I, I don't use the bus enough, but um, I'm just speaking for myself. If a month from now, our expectation is to make a um, intelligent, informed recommendation, uh, I'm pretty far from being able to do that at the moment. So whatever help, Adam, Dave, um, the, um, the folks from Wendell can give us in the meantime would be very helpful. And I think if you could also um, let us know about this PTAC meeting, um, uh, a reminder, email, um, whatever for that, um, that might be real helpful for us to, uh, to sit in on that. And isn't there also, did you mention there are another couple of more public meetings coming up? Uh, Adam Weigel, Transit and Parking Manager. Yes, I would. Um, I'll, when I stop screen sharing here, I will put the our project page in the chat. Um, you can find links to the registrations for public meetings on Wednesday. There's one around the lunch hour and then one in the evening. Um, we're working on some potential in-person uh, set up at the library uh, later in the week or next week. Um, and I can sure put in the, the chat link as well the link to the PTAC agenda that has the registration for next week. So um, I can get those things to you so you can participate. Um, but there, there's a lot of great information on that project page about where we've come. There's um, some recorded videos from that immersion week that Tony mentioned where we talked through what, what people and passengers and drivers were looking for. Um, and we'll certainly keep, uh, you know, once we have these, now that we have these drawings on paper, we'll continue to push for uh, feedback and people's reactions to that type of info. I want to just follow up on that too, Adam. Um, Steve, um, one of the things I didn't mention in my introduction 
is that uh, prior to joining Wendell eight years ago, um, and I'm primarily in sales and project development with Wendell, but I operated a transit system for 30 years as the director of operations in St. Cloud, Minnesota. We operated um, 67 vehicles. We had commuter bus service. We had uh, very significant university service with our student university, not as big as KU. We were 16,000 students. Um, and then we also um, ran a pretty robust fixed route operation. So I actually went out and met with the drivers over an hour and a half when we were on site during that week. Um, so I have a good, I, I'd like to think anyway, I have a good pulse of operations and how that works and what works and what doesn't work and um, got some good feedback and confirmation of that from the drivers um, and folks when, when we were there on site. But um, I think that's a good point. Great. Well, it sounds like we've got some resources uh, that'll be available to us that'll really help with making that decision next month. But it'll it'll take some <laughs> take some work to to get through a lot of those documents and make sure that we kind of understand that um, mm -hmm. you know, the issues around it and can make a good informed decision. So, I really appreciate uh, Tony and and um, Scott from from Wendell and and for the um, PTAC committee for agreeing to have this uh, joint joint session to help us better understand the you know the two sites and what um you know what what kinds of decisions we can we can make around this so thank you very much great this is michael wazikowski p-tech chair thank you for inviting us i'll make sure that uh, adam sends out an invitation to everyone to join our next meeting which will be next monday starting at 4 10 and we generally run project that we run through 530. Great. Great. Thank you. Great. Thank you all. Thank you. Okay. Well, we'll call this study session to an end and um, uh, adjourn for, uh, let's say, uh, until 615 uh, to, to uh, start our regular agenda. Thank you, everyone. like to call the meeting back to order. Critchlow. Critchlow. Critch okay. Okay. Let me, um, Kurt, are we get ready? Yes. Okay. Unmute. Um, this is Dave Cronin, city engineer. Um, I think we'll start by doing roll call again, if we can, just to make sure we um, get it right here and then um, move on with a regular meeting. So um, Josephine's gonna call roll. So if you're here, let her know. Josephine Gonzalez, MSO. Thomas Allen. See his name, but we'll come back to him. Aaron Payton. Here. Patricia Collette. Here. Charlie Bryan. Oh wait, he his microphone was not working earlier. I don't see him either. I'll come back to him. Gregory Ch Critchlow. 
Steve Evans. Here. Carol Bowen. Not present. Nick Kuzmiak. Yep, here. Okay, and Charlie Bryan, he was here. Yeah, it looks like Charlie is logged off, so he is not present. Okay. Uh, and then um, Tom Allen, he may have just not resumed us yet, but you're muted and we don't see you, so we'll move on. And I'll just turn it over to uh, the chair, Pat. Okay, thank, thank you. This is Pat Collette, Chair MMTC. Uh, the first item on the agenda is um, approving the May 3rd um, meeting, uh, uh, committee commission meeting minutes. Has everyone had a chance to review those? Any any corrections or or um, comments on on the contents? And if not. I would entertain a motion to approve. Nick Kuzmiak, MMTC. I will motion that we approve the May minutes. Okay, is there a second? Uh, Aaron? Thank you, a second from Aaron Payton. Um, Josephine, can you uh, call the uh, call the row for for the uh, for the minutes, please? Uh, Josephine Gonzalez, MSO. Uh, Thomas Allen uh, is showing, but not presently responding. Uh, Patricia Collette. Uh, yes. Charlie Bryan is still not logged back on. And Gregory Critchlow is not present. Steve Evans? Uh, yes. Carol Bowen's not present. And that is everybody. Tom, Tom Allen is present now. Uh, yeah. Okay. Tom Allen? Present. <laughs> we're, we're on the, um, Tom, this is Dave Cronin. We're on the meeting minutes approving those. Um, have you reviewed them? And this is the motion on that. So we missed you on the roll call, but that's the call right now. So if. if okay. Great. Thank you. All right, next item on the agenda is the um, uh, consider recommending approval of the school area traffic control policy uh, to the city commission. And we received in our packet a, uh, a copy of that, um, of, of that uh, policy. So Dave, did you want to, or is there someone else there who's going to speak to that? This is Dustin Smith, uh, senior project in engineer with municipal services and operations and all cover this item so the school area traffic control policy is a uh, 
kind of combination of our previous school crossing control policy and adult crossing guard policy and and with some other revisions as well and updates so uh, the update included adding some newer technology for traffic control devices including the pedestrian hybrid beacons and rectangular rapid flashing beacons and then uh, rolling our adult crossing guard warrant criteria into the the more comprehensive school area traffic control policy and then this policy is also coordinated and was part of the development of the safe routes to school plan and in the safe routes to school plan that was adopted last year um, adopting this school area traffic control policy is an action item in the first two uh, items in the issues and strategies section of the safe routes to school plan and these were uh, issues that were identified as part of the parent survey and the stakeholders and the school area traffic control policy would help address concerns associated with traffic control around schools and safety at intersections and crossings. Uh, also, as part of developing the Safe Routes to School Plan, we uh, went back and evaluated all of our existing adult crossing guard locations um, against our warrant criteria that had existed um, previously and was used to uh, evaluate crossing guards as they were requested in the past. Um, and we discussed the results of uh, this evaluation at our March 1st, 2021 Multimodal Transportation Commission study session. Um, and at that study session, we uh, staff had recommendations that, that were part of the adult crossing guard warrant criteria. And I'll, I'll just cover those highlights again for everyone. The adult crossing guards would only be assigned to locations that meet the warrants adult crossing guards will only be assigned to locations that are on safe routes. Uh, evaluation of existing crossing guard locations will occur at least once every five years. And new crossing guard requests will be reviewed by the Safe Routes to School Working Group. Recommendations forwarded to the Multimodal Transportation Commission for a recommendation to the City Commission. And then sort of the, uh, the results of, of going back and evaluating all of our existing crossing guard locations against our warrant criteria were that only 10 of the 23 existing intersections with crossing guards would be maintained, but two new intersections would have crossing guards added, and then two existing crossing guard locations would be maintained for the current year and reevaluated. And uh, with uh, we have added a new uh, criteria to the the crossing guard uh, warrants, where we would, um, if you meet eighty percent of the threshold for the warrant, you would be reevaluated in the in the following year. But then, if the location did not meet. 100% of the warrant in two consecutive years, then the, the guard would not be implemented at that location. And then the, the last item here is that we do have a, a pending memorandum of understanding with the school district to sort of 
um, formalize our existing kind of collaboration process that we've been working on with, with uh, the school district. Um, I did want to uh, acknowledge that we've received a public comment regarding a specific uh, crossing guard location, an existing location at Inverness and Winged Foot Court. Um, and there was concern about removing the guard there, which was uh, uh, based on the evaluation of the number of students crossing there and the acceptable gaps in traffic to cross safely, that location does not meet the warrant criteria, which is um, a minimum of 40 students per day using that location and a minimum of uh, 1.5 acceptable gaps per minute for the students to cross. And so that location actually does not meet either one of those warrant criteria. Um, with that, I'll uh, uh, open it up to discussion. Take any questions? Are there questions from commissioners? Excuse me, I can move DC. Dustin, I had a question about the metric for average vehicle, sorry, average vehicle per gap rate, um, both AM and PM. Um, I, I'm assuming this is some sort of measure of traffic volume during the AM and PM rush for schools, but I'm kind of surprised having looked into that public comment and seeing that Wingfoot Court is like pretty much across the street from Quail Run Elementary. Um, I'm kind of surprised that that's all there is given that, I mean, what is it like 80% of kids get dropped off to school by their parents? It seems pretty unlikely that it's such a small rate. So I may be misinterpreting the metric here. You were asking about the, the average vehicle slash gap rate column? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so that, that is kind of a combined column because some of the warrants are based on vehicle volumes, vehicles per hour, and others are based on a safe and acceptable gap in traffic. So that, that is um, based on the crossing distance and the uh, speed limit on the roadway, you know, how many seconds you would need to safely cross the street and then we count how many of those uh, gaps of that minimum time are observed in in each minute and so that that column does have kind of two different uh, measurements based on, on, on the type of crossing um, so in that case, if you have a really low number, does that imply that, I'm just trying to think how I would visualize it. It seems like kind of a, a difficult metric to visualize. So, I mean, it ranges from at the very lowest about 1.7, all the way up to over 1,800. So that's a, that's a huge range. Um, could you kind of just describe what a person crossing that street would feel? Like, what's the difference there? This Dustin Smith with MSO. I, again, I apologize that that does lead to confusion with having the kind of two different metrics in one column. And so for for this, if we go back to the specific location that was uh, brought up in the public comment, Inverness and Wingfoot Court, um, it's location number 14 in the table. So that, for an uncontrolled crossing, the warrant is based on 
volume of students, and then that combined column for this location would be the uh, number of gaps per minute of uh, the minimum amount of seconds for a safe crossing. And so it looks like in the, in the a.m. in the morning, there were just over two acceptable gaps in the traffic for a safe crossing. And then in the afternoon, there were 2.7 gaps per minute that would be acceptable for the students to cross safely. And then the higher numbers you're seeing there, those are for warrants that are based on vehicle volumes. So like, you know, the hundreds, those are, those are vehicles per hour. And, and that's because that location, the warrant for that was, is based on a vehicles per hour um, criteria as opposed to a gaps per minute. Thanks, I, I think I'm starting to get it, although I don't know where that threshold is, so I would I mean, this is a bit pedantic, but I would recommend maybe formatting the numbers different depending on which metric you're ranking them on. Because I don't know if, you know, 47 is in the same league as 300, for example. Um, but I guess getting back to the um, public comment, I think what struck me was that there's a metric in there in her note that was not really accounted for here. And that is the distance to the next crosswalk. And I think that's something that we have had, we've kind of struggled with quantifying. So. In previous talks in the non-motorized project prioritization plan, Charlie has noted that you know, the crossing from, or the having a sidewalk on the east side of Iowa towards Bob Billings 15th is kind of crucial because there really aren't a lot of other good crosswalks anywhere around there. And because of that, people are forced to cross a kind of an awkward state or backtrack like crazy. And kids are probably even less likely to do something like that. So since this is really the only crosswalk in between Wakarusa and said Bob Billings, um, it, it seems like, you know, if you were looking at this on a case-by-case -case basis, that it probably would merit some consideration, but it's a metric that's not picked up in our, um, I guess, in the index here. So I guess I don't want to stop the presses and say, hey, we need to completely rethink this prioritization because obviously we missed something, but it may not be a bad idea if we get to reevaluate this every once in a while to maybe think about that the next go around. Um, distance to next signalized crossing or like any crossing really. Right, and I think the other, you know, the other thing I think is in terms of the process for appeal, I guess, for, you know, as far as presenting this, you know, once a decision has been made about the crosswalk and what what avenue do do parents have to make an appeal, you know, for special special consideration or, you know, you know bringing some of these questions forward because, you know, like you noted, Nick, this this table is not intuitive. You know, to to look at what the criteria are for uh, making those decisions, it's it's um, it's pretty difficult to look at this and to know. Um, you know, I think we had this discussion at the last um, last time that we we looked at this was in terms of um, you know going out and looking at some of those intersections. Um, you know, if we were interested, because you know it's it's really hard to. I mean. You, you think you know that intersection, and, but from the perspective of a child crossing at that at that spot, it's hard to um, hard to know. And I think with the last year or two with with COVID, that changed things a lot. So it was really difficult to to know what um, you know what that, what those situations were. So I should have noted that the other metric that I think is, is left out here is how how close is this crossing to, to a school? Because the closer it is to a school, the more likely. Kids are going to 
excuse me, the more likely kids are going to be using it. I mean, this one's literally across the, the street. So it's likely that at least some of these kids are probably using the southwest uh, sidewalk to get to where they got to go. So, um, yeah, I don't want to make this overly complicated, but, yeah, there's there's got to be a better way to to <clears throat> not miss what appear to be very, very obvious needs for crossings here. This is uh, David Cronin, the engineer. I would jump in and just make sure there's one distinction that we're making here with crossing. It could be a, a crossing and a marked crossing, but it's the having the adult crossing guard. Um, so when you're, you know, just want to make sure we're um, on the same page with that. And, you know, it could be still a, a crossing, um, but just not have the, uh, the adult crossing guard. So having the crossing is a separate criteria in this in the in the policy than the crossing guard the adult crossing guard right yeah yep. uh, steve thanks pat uh steve evans transportation commissioner um a general comment uh over the years we've looked at a lot of metrics and um jessica in particular has um come up with some really brilliant ways to be analytical and give us guidance in dealing with stuff like this. And several of us have made the comment that um, the data is wonderful, but it should be the beginning of the conversation and not the end of the conversation. And I want to point that out to everybody that um, I may be rocking the boat here a little bit. I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not trying to tip the boat over. But um, I think that um, personally, when I see the public comment, it kind of took me back a few steps with what we're doing here and what we're recommending. And um, I guess that's my comment. My question would be to um, Dave and Dustin and, and, you know, staff, in terms of your process, um, when you got the data, where did you go from there in your decision-making process? Can you describe that to us? Uh, this is Dave Cronin, city engineer. <clears throat> well, most recently we got the data in 2019 with the uh, uh, with the Safe Rasta School Plan. We reevaluated all the crossings and got the data. When, when the when the adult crossing guards were um, approved or installed in locations, that was really from uh, the history that I have was based off based on the data. So, um, you know, some of them have been around in areas for a long time, um, and so they may have met the criteria um, at that time, but they uh, do not anymore and so i think that was the kind of the um process we went through with the safe rasta school plan was uh kind of looking at the numbers again to see are these priority locations um there are um you know uh, one of them was is not even on a safe route anymore um and so um you know routes change um and the um you know the school boundaries change and that may affect uh the priorities and the location so there there could be uh 
locations out there that uh, meet adult crossing guard uh, criteria and um, that would be higher priority uh, in the future. So, you know, really so far this is, um, we've kind of applied this based just on the data, um, uh, at least uh, in my experience. Um, and I, you know, I think it would be difficult to remove any of these crossing hours, not just the one that we had the public comment on, um, but um, you know, we did try to make uh, some uh, adjustment by using the 80% threshold to say, hey, we'll reevaluate it, it's pretty close. Um, and, the, and those would be ones that we could reevaluate. But other than that, um, there's nothing, I guess, in the policy that would be, uh, you know, used other than the, other than the data or, or to appeal the location. Other than that, we would l uh, look at each location once every five years. Um, so, if there's any other concerns about uh, about the numbers, we could discuss that, or the locations, or really just uh, you know presenting the information and the updated data that we got with that Safe Process School Plan um, to see where it fit with our policy that's on the books. Well, I'm struggling a little bit and I need some help. I'd like to get some comments from other people on the commission, but uh, <clears throat> and we say we are recommending approval to the city commission someone might logically ask us if we considered each individual location in some level of detail. And if somebody asked me that question, I would say, no, we did not, that I did not. And the, the, the other side of that coin is, okay, well, why did you recommend approval for this? And our answer would be, we looked at the policy, we looked at the criteria, and we looked at the evaluation by staff, and we thought that it was uh, appropriate. So those are my words, and I'd ask other people to chime in here, um, because I'm just kind of wavering a little bit on what I might be voting for tonight. Um, and what that may mean to the city commission if um, there's more public comment than what we received tonight. And um, I'd, I'd be interested, you know, in what other people think here. Uh, yes, Aaron. Uh, yeah, I have some comments on this, maybe some questions. Um, I would argue that our, our warrant criteria is off. Um, I mean, and I've talked about a couple of these things in the past and was not exactly sure where this was gonna go. And I know that it was discussed um, sort of as this all began and as the, the policy was being rewritten. Um, but one thing that really bothers me about this is uh, I use this as an example because it's this, it's where I spend the most time. I work at Ranger Montessori School, um, and there are four schools right there that kids could be crossing back and forth from. And when this policy started to get rewritten, I argued there's something wrong with 
um, I think it's 30 now, 30 students have to be crossing uh, at that intersection to warrant a um, crossing guard. And I argued this at the March meeting that that seems to be backwards to me. So basically we're telling parents, your child has to be crossing at an unsafe intersection in order to get a crossing guard. And, and that seems very clear at that intersection. I, I had done the safe routes to school um, surveys uh, many, many years ago at Braintree, but then someone did them for other schools. And um, what I found, I, I don't remember what the, the data is, so unless anybody has it on hand, I know it was well over 100 kids were potential, potentially could be crossing that intersection. So but the potential for kids crossing that intersection was really high. The number of kids actually crossing at that intersection, this is Clinton Parkway and Inverness, if I haven't clarified that. Uh, the potential for kids crossing is very high, but the actual number of kids crossing is very low. However, I've spent enough time going back and forth to that school and to the other schools over there picking up neighbor kids that I've watched on many occasions uh, I, parents and parents that I know that I, a couple of them I was able to go and say, hey, what? tell me what happened here, stand at that intersection and, and watch as their kids cross, trying to get it to the point where their kid could cross alone um, so that they wouldn't have to take them to school every day and, and they could walk themselves to school, which is what they wanted. And I watched it happen and it was very, very scary. So the parent basically said, we're not doing that. I'm just going to take them. And so I have strongly felt like we need to be looking at the potential for the number of kids crossing because if you're asking a parent, I know as a parent, to let their kids cross at an unsafe intersection in order to get a crossing guard, they're not going to do it. So the only way you can get the kids crossing there is to put a crossing guard there, let people know it. And then I think you would have more kids cross. But I think that's one of those things that I feel like is very backwards and is actually creating a situation in which less kids are crossing because it feels unsafe when what we say we want to do is have more kids cross. So I think that's one thing that's wrong with the warrant criteria. But I also, we kind of mentioned last time you have a, you have not very many kids crossing. I can't remember what it was, Osdall in uh, 23rd maybe. Um, but you have some, some very poor kids. You have an equity issue there where if you take the crossing guard away, you know, you're creating an unsafe situation where, yeah, you might be you know, providing that crossing guard for very few kids, but they really need it. Uh, you know, mom or dad can't walk with them or they don't even have a car to drive to school. And so the kid is forced to cross with no crossing guard in an unsafe situation. So I just think our warrant criteria, like I do not feel like I could recommend approval of this at this point with this warrant criteria and with this data and with the idea that only 10 of our intersections would meet that criteria. So I think that the warrant criteria is off. Glad you made it. Yeah. Other comments? Uh, 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 Commissioner Payton, again, I asked, I wanted to point out uh, if someone would address, uh, I know Chris Tilden, it looks like he's wanting to make a public comment. So he asked when, when would the opportunity for public comment in this be? I wanted to put that up. Yeah, and I was just going to, thank you, this is uh, Commissioner Collette, and I was just going to uh, ask for uh, public comment. I saw that Chris was, was asking and wanted to give commissioners a chance to respond first. So, Chris, would you like to make a comment? 
Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, first, I want to, I do want to acknowledge and thank both the MSO and MPO for work on this. Uh, I can't recall when we first had the discussion about updating the school area traffic control policy, and I, I know that there were tweaks made many, many years ago that really have been operationalized. But it's great that we're at this stage of the process. So, uh, kudos for that. I. You know, I know the the warrant issue is is a tricky one. You know, we've certainly, um, I say, we groups like Livewell have talked about you know working with the school district, working with the the city to look at ways that we can, um, you know, devise some opportunities to um, look at those. Um, you know, to have well, not even sure what the mechanism would be, but opportunities to. Um, work with parents to um, identify some opportunities for for um, more better utilization of safe routes. The warrant issue one, I know, is really really tricky. Um, I actually had two people um, contact me because of my work with safe routes. Uh, one of which was the Quail Run issue because I live in this neighborhood. Um, one of the issues they didn't bring up that crossing there that really is pretty tricky is Inverness is a relatively narrow drive and you've got cars turning right off of Oak tree. And so you always have cars lined up who are coming from the South. You have cars lined up generally that are coming from the North because they're turning left into the school. And so their kids are literally walking between cars usually uh, at that crossing and I'm usually, when I am going there, I, even with a guard, I have to be really careful. Um, I, you know, the, the site issue is one that's problematic there. Um, not that this is about any specific crossing. The other, but just anecdotally, the other, you know, parent that did talk to me has uh, kids. They live west of Iowa and cross at Harvard in order to get over to Hillcrest. And what Aaron said, kind of, you know, same kind of issue, uh, concern about a, a very wide uh, street with uh, high traffic volume and fast moving cars. Um, so I know that that's a, it's a tricky issue. Thanks for the opportunity to comment. Thank you, Chris. This is Commissioner Collette. I think, you know, in general, in, ter in terms of looking at this policy and, and the direction that we're moving, you know, you know, adding the new traffic control devices with the pedestrian hybrid hybrid beacons and and um, you know, and coordinating with the with the safe routes to school plan. I think both of those are really key elements of of this policy. But, you know, again, I do still have concerns about the warrants and being able to, uh, you know, to understand them thoroughly enough to, to explain them to others in terms of what, and the fact that, you know, so many of the intersections were recommended, you know, to, that didn't meet the warrants and that, um, you know, like Commissioner Payton said, it, it just feels like, um, that there, there need to, and also Commissioner Evans, I think in terms of, you know, what are we missing here in terms of, of that data? That data is very important, but I, it's 
it seems like when you try to apply it to intersections, there's there is something something missing in that entire process. This is David Cronin, city engineer. <clears throat> you know, I, I know we heard some of these uh, concerns when we had this session. session back in March. Um, and, you know, after that meeting, we did send um, all the commissioners a list of the locations and the times and the crossings to go out and uh, visually see them in the field because sometimes unless you're out there maybe you don't think of everything so if there's something that you that any commissioner has seen specifically that would make you rethink our our process or our policy for adult crossing guards we'd be uh, certainly willing to look into it further if there's anything specific um, um, but other than that, yeah, we're, we're just bringing back uh, mainly the technical data. And so the, this, this is a, it's, it's a city uh, policy. Um, the city does maintain these adult uh, crossing guards. Um, um, I do understand uh, Commissioner Payton's uh, comments uh, about, um, you know, if you, if you have an adult crossing guard, um, there might, you know, you we'll have more uh, likelihood of crossing, but I think that's one of those things that we need to continue on working with the schools and the school district um, to identify those locations that, um, and, and maybe uh, through our Safe Rouse School Working Group, determine if we should have uh, volunteer crossing guards and then get data and see if um, you know, if it's a higher priority, if it's a high priority area, like some of the, uh, that would, uh, you know, meet our, our criteria for a full-time crossing guard. Um, so I, um, you know, I guess the, the struggle from our side is, uh, you know, we do have this policy on the book so that we, if we get another request, we're going to follow this data. Um, and so if there's something else that we need to follow, uh, we haven't been doing it in the past. Um, and so we want to be consistent and, and also recognize that we want to prioritize where we put the crossing guards because they're a limited resource. So, you know, when we set out with reviewing um, these locations, we didn't do so with the intention on reducing uh, the crossing guards by a specific number. Uh, it was just like, it was just a data uh, approach and then looking at uh, our warrants and and then trying to, um, you know, see if there's any room for reevaluating some of these locations. And so there might be an argument to reevaluate all of those, but we want to be consistent on understanding what, what else we're missing. So um, I guess I would offer that. And uh, Jessica, do you have anything to add? Yeah, this is Jessica Mortinger, Transportation Planning Manager with the MPO. One of the things I think we tried to listen to during the Safe Routes to School process was the feedback we got from parents about crossing guards. And it became really apparent that the current process and the lack of reevaluation of any location really required this effort to kind of mitigate or barely fight for new guards and not be responsive to what was happening under changing conditions. Um, and so this 
program allows us the opportunity to create a process that we can be responsive based on a set of performance metrics. I do think that as we evolve the Safe Routes to School process, there's going to be the need to recognize other opportunities to make sure kids can walk and bike safely to school. For example, some feedback we got during the process specifically said there needs to be a crossing guard at every intersection along 27th Street so my kid can walk to school. And as we hear some of those type of comments, we think, you know, there are other solutions like walking school buses and um, student crossing guard patrols. Dave mentioned volunteer crossings. I think there could be the evolution of additional answers to ensuring that kids can walk and bike safety, of which crossing guards is one adult paid crossing guards at this program is one component of that. We also have, because we've never been back to reevaluate all these sites since they've got added over the years, there's never been a conversation about as changes were made to the built environment and crossing improvements were changed, um, whether or not it's appropriate still that that crossing guard be placed at that location as the highest priority in the community. Because you can see even through this evaluation of the crossing guards at the bottom of the list that were not currently placed crossing guards that we observed crossings happen. Some of those both warrant crossings, but also have higher numbers of students crossing than some of the locations where you already have guards. And so I think um, this programmatic approach gives us a way to evaluate that. It's possible we could come back, um, I think. And one of the conversations we've had with LiveWell is thinking about, you know, we haven't found a good pilot program that we've seen as a best practice to address some of the concerns that Aaron and others have raised, which is about, you know, build it and they will come, which is provide a guard, tell people it's there, see if they'll use it in that way to train people about it and also build support for new crossing guard locations to support kids walking and biking. And I think that's a really good opportunity for next year when we get questioned about evaluating new crossing guards. I think staff would probably see that as, and it, uh, a poor use of our time, like, you know, like Aaron said, particularly at the 23rd and Inverness, knowing that, you know, there are probably very few students currently crossing there. But maybe there's an opportunity with LiveWell to develop a program and a set of metrics where that crossing can be observed, you know, over a two week period when we ask, when we place volunteer guards out there and see if there could warrant enough crossings in that sort of programmatic approach. I don't know that we could guarantee that we could do that like at every crossing that's requested or part of this process, but I think it's an opportunity to start thinking about something differently, but we would want to test it probably to see how we think it's going to work because you're going to want to also understand that if you do place a guard there, you're going to have to see like, well, do those kids, did they only just walk and bike the two weeks where you placed a temporary guard and you wanted to evaluate it? Does it actually work in the long run for building up support for walking and biking? And I think that's yet to be proven. And I don't think, I haven't found a good example in any of our research of anybody who's doing that sort of stuff. Almost everyone is evaluating cross guards based on different characteristics like those that are evaluated in our policy um, and using that as a way to build their crossing guard programs. This Commissioner Collette, it seems like at our study session in the discussion about the warrants, um, you know, there was uh, someone made the statement that these were like kind of standard accepted warrants for um, intersection evaluation. Um, so Jessica, when you say you haven't 
found like the best practices is that best practices in terms of alternatives to you know or additions to those warrants or i mean is it is it common in terms of this approach to making those evaluation and other communities that that these are the metrics that are being used um to for for those thresholds yeah jessica morton your transportation planning manager i'll let dustin speak in a second about the warrants because he is the as the engineer did a lot of the research about the engineering warrants i would however say what i was speaking about when i said we didn't find a really good case study was about places where they tried to advertise for guards and build you know like place a temporary guard as a pilot see how well it happened, educate all the parents, tell people about, you know, your opportunity and then assess it. That's what we haven't, I didn't, I have never found a good example of that. So if anybody has, I would love for them to point us in that direction, because I think that's probably the direction we need to move in. In terms of that, we are also going to have to just be thoughtful about the fact of the timing to do that, how it has to fall in the process before budget. Um, thinking about all of those things in terms of making it actually a functional decision and process that can work will probably require coordination with volunteers in the com community as well as the school district. Dustin, do you have anything to add about the engineering warrants? Sure. Uh, Dustin Smith, MSO, I just would uh, recap that we did review our warrant criteria against uh, kind of best practices uh, the the Kansas crossing guard policy and uh, some some other communities nationwide and we are in line and and I think I've said before actually a little more conservative than most of the uh, best practices or, or uh, standard practice if you will where w conservative conservative meaning that we would place a guard with a lower threshold for you know volume of students or or volume of vehicles than than other kind of standard practice that I found. And again, I, I looked for what uh, Jessica was, was talking about, how, if you, how to measure that kind of latent demand, if you will. You know, if, if there isn't a guard there and, and parents don't feel safe letting their students cross without a guard, how, how do you know if they would, if there was a guard without actually putting a guard there temporarily or volunteer or however we could accommodate that. I would like to point out that Chris Tilden added in the chat that he said he believes there are groups like LiveWell that would they, that he mentioned previously that could assist with things like short-term volunteer crossing guards to provide opportunities for reevaluation. Pat, this is Steve Evans. Um, uh, I'd like to figure out a way we could move this forward. In a, in a way that we could all be comfortable with. And for me personally, that would be, because there's all kinds of stuff in this, in this um, policy that's fantastic, that should be implemented. Um, the, the holdup seems to be the crossing guards and the elimination of the crossing guards. And if I could get that cleared, and I don't think we're gonna be able to do that tonight, but would it be appropriate to have a study session where we looked at those 10 crossing guards, um, you know, virtually and had a better understanding, uh, make a more informed decision about those. And I think that would be serving the city commission and the public if we did that. Um, 
as it is now, that's a deal breaker for me. Ms. Commissioner Collette, I think for me, the the stumbling block and 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 getting more clear about what is the you know is the process moving forward. And in terms of you know, we say if these this is the policy, these are the warrants, these are the these are you know basically on these warrants, these are the ones that don't meet the criteria, and these are the ones that do. And then moving forward, what are the what can we line out as a process for getting those reconsidered or, you know, and, and piece that seems to be missing for me, I, you know, I know that we're working towards the MOU on the, with the, with the school district and what, you know, but it's like, it feels like the schools should be more, more involved than what, you know, what we're, what we've seen so far. So I don't, you know, and maybe that's because I'm not, I'm just not seeing that part of it. And, you know, I, um, you know, thinking about, you know, each individual school and, you know, the knowledge of, you know, of this, of the kids that are attending those, those schools and, and, um, and the interaction with Safe Routes to School, you know, so having that process in terms of having it on a Safe Routes to School route, that makes total sense to me, um, you know, so that, that those are the, those are the pri priorities, but then what's, what, what are some, you know, lining out some next steps for, um, you know, if, if a crossing guard is limited as, as a result of this process, then, you know, what, what, what's the process moving forward for, for, for that, you know, that area for that school or for the, really for the families around those schools. Thank you, Zmiak, MMTC. If I could, I, I'd kind of like to suggest maybe an, an idea because I, I, I feel like I'm hearing a bit of a consensus that we don't necessarily like where the warrants currently are. We might like to see them adjusted, or I don't know if really I'm using the right word here, but the threshold to qualify for a crossing guard, it seems like we maybe don't agree with how it currently is configured and would like to see a, a bit of an adjustment. Am I reading the room correctly here? Is there somewhat of a consensus for that? And if so, is there enough time to pull that off before school starts to kind of readjust it in a month? Aaron. Commissioner Payton, um, I, I mean, that's how I'm feeling. And I, I under, I mean, I appreciate what Jessica said um, as far as like other avenues and, and that kind of thing. But I also think that there are parents that are relying on this now and I don't feel comfortable sort of pulling that out. And so I just feel like I'd, it, it would be nice to address some of this before making a change like this. So yes, Nick, I would say, you know, that, that is what needs to be looked at. Um, as to whether before school or not, I don't know. <laughs> that sounds like a challenge. Excuse me, MMTC. So Pat, I don't know if it makes sense to do this either at a study session or maybe as a regular agenda item, because if we're going to be creating an actual recommendation for maybe new metrics or revised metrics by which to judge the, the merit of these potential crossing locations, um, it may take some discussion. And um, I mean, if there's an action that we need to take, it might be good to have that as a regular agenda item. I don't know. I'm just... Yeah, well, this is Commissioner Klan. It seems, you know, in, in terms of, you know, revamping the the metrics that's you know that's more than a regular agenda 
session, but you know, taking the action to approve the policy, we need that on the on the regular agenda. We did have a study session on that. I think some of the things that we talked about, like the equity issue, you know, so for intersections where they might not quite meet the warrant, but it was in an area where um, you know parents were lower income or might not be able to drive their kids to school or whatever, um, you know, and that's you know that's not included it, as part of the metric and. Um, you know, so either that adjusting the warrant or uh, adding in some, um, you know, some kind of after the fact, as far as a appeal uh, for those for those crossing guards, you know, some special circumstances or that kind of thing to um, seem would make sense to me. So I, I don't know, Dave, what what do you think in terms of uh, or Dustin in terms of you know, some, some possible ways forward with this, with this policy. Yeah. Dave Cronin, city engineer. Um, well, there, there's all, there's a lot that I'm hearing, um, <clears throat> you know, with the, the equity conversation. I mean, if that is a, you know, if that is a concern about adding that into the policy, we could uh, discuss that a little bit. We did on our map include the, um, areas um, in the environmental justice zone for uh, the crossings that were to be removed. Um, and, um, you know, it, I think it's hard to, it's hard for us to quantify that at this point. Um, and without, I guess, specific direction on the warrant criteria, you know, we're not going to be able to evaluate any of the crossings, uh, obviously, this summer. So um, we are, um, you know, I definitely can see how this is um, holding up the, the policy now at this point. We're trying to uh, get this approved before the school, uh, school starts back up in the fall. Um, so if there's you know, I don't know. I guess I, I don't. I don't really know if there's consensus on what we need to look at. If it's a, if it's just site by site, or if we need to include some metric for equity and how we do that. And Jessica might have a good idea on that, but yeah, Jessica Mortinger, transportation planning manager. I think there's two things to consider. The first of which is. Uh, there is a budget component to this to this decision about how uh, how many crossing guards get placed and how that operationally works in the budget process. So, if you add any time to this process, some budget decisions are going to need to be made before you could get to revising standards. Likely, I'll say that first. Secondly, I do think we probably have some additional data we could develop around. Um, the concept that Aaron was proposing about just even potential crossings based on using some of the student address data we've mapped for the densities from the previous process, we can we could use the network analyst tool in GIS to map back to see how many kids could funnel in through that potential crossing as a tool. Um, we would have to figure out what that threshold or standard is, I think there are still regardless going to be, um, you know, I think there's still going to be questions where it's going to have to be an evolutionary program. 
I think there's going to have to be at a metric. Let's start collecting it. Let's understand what that impact means in terms of actual crossings versus just potential crossings. Um, so I'm not sure that it's going to even just be a one-year, one-off programmatic approach to evolving this process. I think there is going to be some pain no matter how you do it, because I think the reevaluation of guards is going to likely, regardless if you're using data or other um, anecdotal knowledge of sites and local experience, you're going to get different priorities. And someone's crossing here versus someone's crossing here is going to be equally important if it's that parent's kid's crossing. And so I think from a a holistic perspective, there is going to have to be some data, uh, whether, you know, that there are thresholds you set to evaluate whether or not it's appropriate based on the speed and volume of the street and how many kids are crossing there, the city will have to likely set priorities related to the at the level of um, budget that gets you know, chosen for a program. And likewise, not making a decision. I mean, you have two locations out of the many additional ones that were evaluated that meet the warrants. So, um, it, you know, that's going to have to be part of the budget conversation. So, I don't know if hearing that makes you think any more differently about specific thoughts you might have or what you would like to see. We can do stuff. We can do process. I think the challenge is decisions are going to get made as part of this budget process probably, based on the timeline we're on right now. So Nick Kuzmiak, I'm in TC. That's kind of exactly what I figure would be the case. And what I'm hearing is that this is different from the sidewalk repair prioritization and from the NMPPP in that it either is warranted or it's not warranted. And I feel like that may be part of the flaw here, that there's not a ranked prioritization. And I know we kind of do this to death in our other, you know, pieces of our jurisdiction, but it seems like that may be appropriate here. If we know that we have a limited amount of crossing guards that we can install, then we know there's going to be basically 10, you know, just hypothetically 10 crossing guards, whichever spots rank highest on whatever prioritization criteria that we determine, which it seems like we're pretty close to right here. These actually are numbers on a continuum instead of just yes or no's. So I think if we were to add a couple of metrics that add, that that directly address, or at least by proxy, address concerns that we have, I think we could be pretty close to, you know, a school crossing guard prioritization program, which another acronym right but you know instead of trying to figure where the threshold is just let the ranking do it right the, the threshold is we have 10 guards and we can put them in 10 places and if you make the top 10 you're in and if not then we'll either reevaluate or there's an appeal um but i i think on the metric side what we probably need to have is some sort of equity in um metric that is probably something like the percentage of students at a school that are on free and reduced lunches or the I guess, how far into a transportation disadvantaged district are we on the GIS map? And when it comes to potential crossings, like Aaron was saying, I think two things could work. Just like a, your idea of the density of potential crossings um, based on the GIS walkshed map or whatever it is, that's a pretty good one, but sounds much more complicated to generate. But an easier one could just be saying, how far is this crosswalk from the school that it serves? There you go. You know, the closer it is, the more dense it's likely going to be simply because these are you know, dendritic networks that come into a central node. So if it's close, more likely it's going to have a higher density. Um, as to the appeal process, I mean, I like the idea of it. What I worry is that we got a communication from a parent in, you know, let's be honest, a pretty affluent part of town. Parents in affluent part of, parts of town probably have more time on their hands, have a better knowledge of the system by which to appeal, 
are more likely to be fluent in English. There's just there's a lot more there's a lot more barriers to make an appeal. And you may not even know what's going on, right? If you don't have the time to watch MMTC minutes, if you don't necessarily speak English very well, it's gonna be a lot harder to appeal that process if you feel that your crosswalk is much more necessary than you know something west of Iowa, right? So I feel like we it, it's sort of incumbent upon staff and MMTC here to kind of get it right and make sure that we do as best we can to accommodate equity concerns because the appeal process is not going to favor, you know, um, people of lesser means, right? So I mean, I like the idea of an appeal, but I, I also know who that's going to serve better. So my recommendation, if I could just wave a magic wand, is, you know, add a metric for equity, add a metric for potential crossing, and then, you know, create at least a bit of an appeal po- process on somewhat of a rolling basis, maybe a yearly or semesterly basis. Um, and finally, I'm sorry, I know I'm hogging the floor here, but this is a really interesting topic. The final thing is the budget thing that, Jessica, you brought up. There really are limited resources here. When I read the MOU in the agenda attachment, it says all these things about, you know, we're cooperating with the school board, the school boarding is cooperating with us. But are they though? I mean, parking fees pay for this. There's only 10 because we know we as a city can't afford any more. The school board is not contributing financially at all. Is that correct? And they also refuse to put in a AAA sponsored junior patrol program, which means that they're almost actively against it. So I feel like it's incumbent upon the school to kind of handle their fair share here instead of making us pick winners and losers, possibly correctly, possibly not, based on the, you know, being hamstrung by the district that we are serving. So I would highly recommend in the commission's and staff's recommendation to city commission to really put the pressure on USD 497 to step up their game. And if they truly want to have children have a safe walk to school, they're going to need to put some resources into it. And they could be free with a AAA sponsored program, right? Um, you don't even have to have financial resources, just time and effort. Um, so anyway, that's my piece. Um, I don't know how you all are feeling aligned with that. but Nick, I'd like to point out real quick that the park, the crossing guards are general fund, from funded out of the general fund. Okay. So, so it's still city, but it's not parking. Sorry, Correct. for some reason, I, th- I thought that's I got right. that last time, but... But the, but you're right. This the school district is not putting putting uh, funds into into the program. Yeah, and for getting 54% of our property taxes, you think they'd be able to at least contribute close to that, you know, for cost share for the program. I think it's a little bit disappointing, really. So in ter- this is Commissioner Collette. In terms of um, the potential for adding those metrics, and the I like the idea of the of the prioritization, you know, so that you have a rank listing of those of those intersections to to make it easier to see the um, the threshold. And you know, in terms of you know advocating for additional funds, <laughs> one place or another, that 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 line could be drawn you know, further down the list, um, you know, would be, you know, that would be helpful to be able to see it in those terms. Is that something that's doable, um, you know, with the with the data that's available? Jessica and or Dave? Yeah, Jessica Morton, your transportation planning manager. Yes, like I, like I said, I do, I, I think the walk shed thing is probably a 
better metric in terms of potential crossings if you're looking at just walk shed than distance to the school. Because I would say, depending on how boundaries are drawn, a crossing could be very close to the school, but there may not actually be any density of students who would walk that route behind um, where that crossing is. So it'd be probably more accurate to do uh, like a potential crossing. We have the capacity to do it. It's just about uh, working with some other staff and their prioritization, you know, their workflow prioritization. So I think it's probably reasonable we could add something like that. Um, I guess my consideration, and I'll push, I'll ask kind of back to you, are you comfortable starting at, you know, like how do you, if we're looking at free and reduced lunch and or transportation disadvantaged, you know, is it about percentage of, mm, I'm trying to think just a second. I mean, percentage of free and reduced lunch, we can add that as a percentage. Do you just want to have that weighted as a factor? Like there's a, uh, do you envision it as kind of like a formula that would weight that as a factor in addition to the other, the other criteria, like kids, number of kids crossing and or um, traffic volume and or gap, available gaps? Yes. But I have, that would take a lot more work probably to do the, the way ranking. And that's really subjective. So, well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I was kind of asking back in your yeah. direction, what you're, what you would want staff to do, because I yeah. want very clear, uh, clear expectation about what we would be trying to put together so we can bring you back what you feel comfortable with and what you need to move forward. Yeah. Uh, Nick Kuzmik, MMTC. I think the best under short notice if we're trying to keep this moving as much as possible will be some sort of color gradation on each of the columns. And then you can kind of, um, I mean, this is kind of getting into a data gate thing, but if there was a way to have an Excel sheet that had each metric kind of lined up and a color gradation on each of them, and you could sort by each and see which ones end up being in, say, the top quartile um, of each of those intensity metrics. Um, I mean, Adding weighting is a whole nother level of subjectivity. At that point, we're taking data and saying which is more important. And granted, by selecting this data in the first place, we're already saying this data is more important than that which we are not collecting, but you gotta draw the line somewhere, right? So um, I don't know, any other commissioners have any ideas on, if, can we weight it? I don't know. Karen? Uh, Commissioner Payton. Um, I mean, we start talking about this and I start thinking about things like some of these are on safe routes to school, and we're saying it's a safe routes to school, but not providing a crossing guard, which sometimes makes it not really that safe. So, I mean, that would be another thing that I don't know if we could wait or or how that could come into it. But I think, I mean, maybe Jessica, you can answer, is there a way we could also consider that and, you know, like a weighted um I believe there's only one existing crossing guard location and or may and maybe one requested, but I can't recall specifically that right now. One existing crossing guard location that's not on a, a, an existing uh, route to school. And I know from looking at it, there's only four or five households that lived beyond that point on that route to the school. So like that's one example. That one happens to be in North Lawrence. And this is Commissioner Clad, I think you know that discussion around waiting. You know that may be the you know the evolutionary part of this process is that you know that's not something that can get done 
this year, but as as we work with with this policy, that you know, in the future we could move uh, towards that. But if I think if there are just a couple of uh, of additional items to to add into that, that you know, that address the equity, and then like you say, just the just the prioritization to to uh, help us better um, represent those those intersections or those crossings. I think that that would that would be really helpful and something that you know that we that we can explain you know that uh, to the to the public in, in terms of what that policy looks like. Excuse me, I come MCC. I agree. I think then to avoid biting up for the week too, it's good to at least have the data and do the data analysis if you can see what you know hits a lot of intensity and a lot of metrics, um, and at least have kind of transparency for choosing why we chose where we did or why staff chose where they did. Um, and maybe next year, try to try to evolve this to the next level as we have already with the uh, sidewalk repair prioritization and the M NMPPP. Um, you know, it's a process. We're doing our best, but if we can catch it now, if there's time, great, and we'll just do better next year, right? Other commissioners, thoughts about that, whether that's an acceptable way and um, you know, to move forward. And I guess the question is, um, in terms of adding those those metrics, is Jessica, is that something you know you mentioned within the budget process and that kind of thing? Is that something that um, you know that could be done in the next month? And would that accomplish the the goal of of, of being included within the the budget process? I think Jessica Morton, your transportation planning manager. That's where I think either Brad or Dust or Dave. Cronin are going to need to speak to that, the yeah. timing of the budget process. I'm not as involved with that process. Okay. Yeah, Dave Cronin, city engineer. Um, I think, I mean, that process is ongoing. And so it's, um, you know, like Jessica said, decisions may be made prior to adopting this revised policy. Um, as far as bringing it back, we might be able to bring it back uh, in July. I, I guess I can't guarantee that, depending on the amount of time it's going to take us to make uh, revisions and coming up, come up with uh, some weighting criteria to to bring you back uh, an option that we could get a recommendation on. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I uh, we. That's why we were shooting for June as far as uh, keeping this moving, but um, we certainly don't want to do it if there's concerns about uh, the criteria. So if, if uh, you know, if we can keep discussing this and, the, um, and bring back uh, some weighted criteria and, and maybe kind of show this a little differently, I think uh, we could uh, do that in the next month or two. Pat, this is Steve Evans. I think um, I don't see any other options than what Dave just described, honestly. And um, this has been a great discussion. I think we've moved it forward. And I'll personally apologize uh, to staff um, um, because this has got to be frustrating because in March we, we had this in front of us. And the bells are ringing now, and and I do apologize for that. But hey, you got to do the right thing, and um, 
it um, I think some things jumped out at us tonight, and in particular the public comment, and, um, and and from the memo and from what Chris had to say. So um, I will. Um, I do want to apologize because we're kind of. <laughs> this has got to be frustrating, but we'll get there. Hang in there with us. Okay. Well, I would. I would like to propose that we, you know, that we table this and, um, if possible, bring it back to the July meeting uh, for action. But, you know, based on staff time, uh, that sounds like it. You know, might be August before we can, before we can see that. But I do think. Generally, the rest of the policy, I think, from my perspective, looks really good. And I think if we can just work a little bit more to fine tune that um, the warrants um, that, uh, that we'll, we'll be getting there. All right. Are we ready to move on to the next item? Need a motion? Do we, yeah. Do we need a motion for that, Dave, to table it? Yes, uh, you could give us a, a motion because um, we did make a recommendation on this to approve. And then um, it, you wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt to reiterate the things you want us to look at with that okay. motion so we're clear. Okay, would someone like to make a motion? <laughs> I nominate Nick to make the motion, please. <laughs> MMTC. I won't let you down, Steve. All right. Um, I motion that we table the discussion on crossing guard placement and the overall ordinance and direct staff to add uh, a metric of equity and a metric of potential crossing density um, and also rework the table from a thresholds-based system to a, a ranking prioritization such that the same number of crossing guards that is currently available will remain available in the new version. I don't think I'm, that we need to add anything yet about the rest of the thing looks good. Yeah. Push the school for funding. That's not a part of this. So. Right. Just, just the actual warrants. Right. Thank you. Good job. Is there a second? Uh, second from Aaron Payton. Okay. All in favor. We need a, uh, um, Josephine, can you call the roll? Josephine Gonzalez, MSO. Thomas Allen. Hey, hey. I'm sorry. Um, yes, can you hear me? Yes, okay, thank you. Uh, Patricia Collette. Yes. Charlie Bryan, not present. Gregory Critchlow, not present. Steve Evans. Ruth. Carol Bowen, not present. Nick Kuzmiak uh, is the one that motioned. All right. Five zero. Right. Thank you. Okay, we'll move on to the next uh, uh, item, which is uh, item three, receive the update on the downtown master plan. Okay, 
Amy Miller, Assistant Planning and Development Services Director, here to provide you with an update on the downtown master plan and also provide you with a little bit of information as to how the plan will be used after adoption, um, particularly as it comes to transportation concerns. Um, the draft of the downtown master plan was released on April 28th. That actually followed um, almost three years of public input um, issuance of an existing condition summary and gathering input from the community. Um, it was the project has been delayed um, because due to the COVID pandemic. Um, however, we're back on track now. And as I said, the draft plan was released at the end of April. We held a virtual public open house. Um, the consultant that is working on the project, Halcyon Levine Associates. Um, conducted a virtual open house at the end of May, and we also held a downtown master plan steering committee meeting at the end of May. A significant amount of comment has been received on the project, and because of that, the downtown master plan steering committee recommended to the city commission that the public comment period be extended three weeks, and an additional downtown master plan steering committee meeting be held in the early part of July um, so that they could better provide input to the City Commission regarding some of those comments. The steering committee meeting in early part of July has just been scheduled just a few minutes ago um, for July 8th at 4 p.m. Um, we are looking to close the public comment period on June 24th at 5 p.m. Um, that's a little bit more than the th additional three weeks um, but we think that that's going to give staff and the consultant enough time to prepare a matrix of the comments that have been received. This matrix will help the steering committee work through all the items that they need to work through. It will most likely contain a lot of items. Every comment will be recorded in that matrix. Um, it will most likely contain a large bulk of them where the consultant will make a recommendation to just include the comment or revise the draft plan according to the comment. Um, and then there will probably be some that rise to the top that we need some more discussion on from the steering committee. That'll help them focus their efforts at that July 8th meeting. Um, then the plan is that the consultant will revise the draft based on that steering committee recommendation and the draft, the final draft plan revised will be presented to the city commission most likely in early August. We are on a tight time frame. Um, this was an extension of the original contract um, and it was an addition of a couple meetings that were not in the original scope. So we are gonna do our best to keep the train on the tracks. Um, the downtown master plan is a guiding policy document. It is not code language. It might make recommendations for changes, modifications, or additions to code language, but it is a guiding policy document. It makes recommendations. As part of that revision, there will also end up being an implementation section that actually takes the recommendations that are made in the plan um, and turns them into um, implementation steps to do after the plan is adopted. Um, but like I said, it's a guiding policy document. It's there for reference. If some of you are familiar with our comprehensive plan, um, plan 2040 or our transportation plan, T2040, 
Um, the downtown master plan is used in a very similar way as a guiding policy document. The information is available on the downtown master plan website. There is a city site that will link you to the consultant site where the draft plan is housed. A couple other things of note, any comments can be sent to the email listed on that website, downtownplan at lawrenceks.org, or sent directly to the consultant through a link on their website. They've got a survey form you can fill out. Um, either one, it'll get to both the consultant and staff. And then the second thing is, you can also take a look from the website. It'll link you to the meeting video from the virtual open house, along with the consultant's PowerPoint presentation. The reason that's a little separate um, is because we actually got Zoom bombed at the virtual open house. Um, so the video is a little interrupted, um, but if you're looking for something to refer to, I would also refer you to the steering committee's meeting, which the meeting is also, the video is posted and it's linked from that same website. And that video actually contains about 40 minutes of the consultant's presentation where they led the steering committee through the draft plan. It's a pretty good information piece. The draft downtown master plan is a, a little over 100 pages. And so I do recommend that you actually just look at the video for the steering committee because the consultant will walk you through it step by step. Um, I am happy to answer any questions you may have. I know that there are some, some in the group have, have submitted comments separately. Um, and we are, we are working on recording all of those comments and getting them out there. Um, but like I said, I'd be happy to answer any questions that you may have. Any questions from commissioners or comments? Uh, Nick. Nick Kuzmiak, MFTC. Amy, I was wondering from a planning commissioner, sorry, from like a planning and development perspective, I've seen a lot of comments, um, not just for the downtown master plan, but also just, you know, Facebook, Reddit, wherever people are talking about Lawrence. There's a lot of people who really seem to want to pedestrianize Massachusetts Street. Um, is this something that's ever come before planning de development in the past? Um, I'm not saying I'm for or against or anything. I'm just kind of curious what your take is here. Amy Miller, Assistant Planning and Development Services Director. We did about 18 months of community engagement on the downtown master plan before the, the consultant even started writing. During that entire time frame, the overwhelming majority of people that participated in all of our community engagement events did not want Massachusetts Street to be a pedestrian only. So the consultant went into drafting the plan with that assumption based on all of that community engagement that we heard. Um, and so that is the product that you're seeing today. Yes, we are seeing a good amount of comment on people asking for Massachusetts Street to be turned into a pedestrian mall through the comments. I can tell you from our standpoint, I think we're seeing a few more on the staff side and a few more on the consultant side at this point, and it's really about 50-50. So I still think it's an item of consideration that probably needs a little bit of discussion. Thanks. Uh, yes, Steve. Thanks, Pat. Um, thank you, Amy, for that. This is Steve Evans. Um, a couple of things come to mind when when I looked at the master plan 
And Amy, this would be kind of a scope of work for the consulting question. Um, there are a lot of statements like uh, make downtown Lawrence more pedestrian friendly. I'm just picking an easy one here. And, you know, several things like that, that are not addressed in terms of how you do that. And I think when I looked through it, I was missing, you know, okay, we want to do this, but how do you do it? How do other places, how have other places addressed a similar consideration and concern. And um, I'd probably say that would be a general comment that I would have. And I know that I looked through, um, I did watch some of the steering committee and I think I'm probably echoing a few of their comments too, surprisingly, not surprisingly, but um, that would be a general comment I would have. And I think it's important for people like us and also the public to understand that how part of it and what the expectation should be. And I'm particularly interested in understanding a little bit more about the implementation section that you, that you um, alluded to a few minutes ago. I don't recall that in the draft plan. Um, maybe, maybe I just didn't get there, but whether I saw it or not, could you talk a little bit about those two aspects of, of what's going on here? Amy Miller, Assistant Planning and Development Services Director. I'll start with your second question. Um, the matrix was not populated at this point. And the reason the implementation section was not populated at this point, the reason is, is because it was it was gonna be an extensive amount of work for the consultant to pull those recommendations out of the draft if we were just going to change them through the comment period. You're basically having to change something in multiple different locations and it was probably gonna be a little hard to track. Um, so this, the first part of your question, and yes, we ha I have heard this from a few different people. The consultant, I promise, was not trying to hide anything but a lot of these recommendations that I'm talking about are buried at the end of the paragraphs. Um, and so I was, I was just looking on in the transportation section under access management, um, and they say traffic should be directed to alleys and efforts should be made to consolidate parking lots at the rear of buildings where possible. So it's, those recommendations that we keep talking about are a little buried in text. The consultant and I have had a little bit of a conversation about maybe there's some different ways we could call those out. Maybe they're bolded, maybe, you know, look a little bit different. So I have heard that and a lot of people have been missing them. Thank you, that's very helpful. And um, I'll just put my two cents in on mass. Um, um, I don't think Massachusetts Closing Massachusetts is an all or none decision. I really think that it's more of a which areas would be best served by either closing them permanently or temporarily. Um, and I really think that, um, you know, speaking as a transportation commissioner, that that would provide more opportunities for active transportation if that were the case. 
and here I am, I'm going to stay at a high level, you know, and, uh, you know, hopefully get away with it. But um, I think that um, those are the kinds of things that, that I think would be interesting, you know, to look at the pockets, to look at where the restaurants and where the retail and where the various um, uh, activities and, and, and may be that may allow us to make it more pedestrian oriented and more uh, open to means of active transportation. That's just a general statement. And uh, I, I just don't think it's a discussion about open or closing mass from 6th to 11th Street. It, I'd like to see it be a little more, uh, a little more vibrant than that to serve what this group is interested in looking at 20, 30 years down the road. Other comments from commissioners or questions? Uh, Nick? Nick Kuzmiak, MMTC. Um, this is one of those really specific ones that is maybe a little bit not directly related to the plan, but one of the things that I feel like I did see this in the actual draft plan was that there is a, a desire for public spaces like a square or a performance center or something like that. And I think the consultants identified that as possibly being where Alan Press currently is or the old LJ World site. Um, I don't know if they identify that or if developers had, but there's there's been kind of talk about that because you know American towns aren't laid out like uh, Latin American towns are where there's actually a public square and that's uh, focal to kind of everything in there. We're kind of laid out along a street of commerce like an English town. So it, it, you know because of that, Lawrence didn't have one kind of built in so to get that would take either, you know, demolishing a building, converting a parking lot or converting a street. Um, so since there may be a fringe appetite out there, at least for pedestrianizing some of downtown, whether that be Massachusetts or something else, um, I'm gonna tie this back to the beginning of our call here. Um, and Amy, I don't know if you wanted at that time, but we were talking about the downtown bus transfer facility along with the other one. and. Um, it seems to me like if you want to make it easy for buses, safer bus riders, um, and you know, maybe just easier for active transportation and possibly provide a public square, then closing off just a single block of Vermont could do it. Now, I mean, I'm not saying this is an easy thing to, to do. I'm sure they would come up against quite a bit of um, opposition for, from people who drive or from those who own businesses on that block, for example. Um, but just from a process standpoint, Whose court is that ball in? Is that planning and development? Is that transportation? Who who would actually, I mean, who would you go to to start something like that? Amy Miller, Assistant Planning and Development Services uh, Director. You are correct. The plan does talk about our community facilities is what they call it. Um, that's the general overhead term. It talks about creating a permanent space for the farmer's market to locate that could be all weather. Um, it talks about events downtown, um, street closures for events. It talks about creating permanent community spaces. Um, you are correct in that there's, it's, it's throughout the plan, um, that general sentiment. Um, in terms of if you wanted to make a request today to close a portion of a street downtown, it's probably a multidisciplinary approach. Um, it probably involves multiple departments. You could probably start with um, uh, Dave Cronin, 
um, and we could, we would probably end up forming a little bit of a task force um, of staff and decide what channel it needs to go through. Thanks. I think the part of the reason I bring it up too is you know time is of the essence, right? All of a sudden, there's this consultant-led effort underway to reimagine what bus transfers look like downtown, and they're currently kind of shoehorned on to a side of a street, which is fine. I mean, it's sort of worked for eight years. Um, but to kind of more holistically look at it, I think the consultant is probably hamstrung by what they can look at because they're only being able to approach it from a you know public transit angle, where if I think the overall transportation, multimodal especially, and um, you know the whole idea of planning out what the future of downtown might look like, if they were to expand their scope with who they're able to talk with and form a solution, I think we could get some really interesting uh, results out of it. So I, I guess I don't know how to drive or urge that um, direction, but um, hopefully there's some kind of method for them to explore an option of actually closing a street to through traffic. Um, kind of a rambling way to suggest something, but um, is that the kind of thing that would take a task force to do or a study session or just a citizen comment? I don't even know where one would start there. Because um, I don't think the consultant realizes that they could maybe ask for that. Um, I don't think they were explicitly told that in their RFQ or RFP. Miller, Assistant Planning and Development Services Director. When you're referring to the consultant, are you referring to the consultant on the downtown transit or are you referring to the consultant on the downtown master plan? No, on the uh, downtown transfer facility. Did you say that already? Yeah. On the downtown bus transfer facility. I think if they were aware that their options could be more flexible than originally thought, there could be some interesting solutions to, you know, trying to fit a transit center downtown. So, so Nick, this is this Pat Collette. So Nick, is your question that uh, what just whether or not that that the consultant for the for PTAC actually was given any of that of those constraints? I mean, it seems like to me that that probably was a constraint. You know, based on the alternatives that we that we saw that you know that uh, you know basically using a, a portion of the street rather than you know, consideration for closing the whole whole street, but I don't know that for a fact. I don't know, Amy, do you know anything about that or no? Dave Cronin's the engineer. I don't believe they used closing the street, the closing the street as, a, as an option. I mean, they looked at uh, existing parking lots and then uh, areas adjacent to parking lots, not adjacent to businesses was the criteria they looked at. So Nick, you have till June 24th to get that get that comment in. I'll try. <laughs> Any other questions of uh, Amy about the master plan? 
I don't see any, so we appreciate you being. Oh, here's a question from the public. Um, Michael Amon. Yes, go ahead, Michael. Ah, there. I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. I had messed up my audio. Uh, yeah, I'm Michael Allman, and um, I probably should submit some comments to the, um, you know, the, the plan website itself, but I just wanted to point out here at the Transportation Commission particularly that what I read in the draft plan, I was um, rather disappointed how so far the consultant seems to um, have slighted bicycle transportation in any number of ways. And I'd like that to, uh, I'd like bicycle transportation to be much more emphasized for, for several reasons. First of all, um, promoting bicycling downtown, and this could have uh, connected to whether sections of Massachusetts are open or not or closed. Uh, but by promoting bicycling downtown, we can very much alleviate motor vehicle pressure if more people are bicycling and fewer people are driving, that'll also alleviate parking scarcity. Um, parking, which takes up an inordinate amount of space, which should really be more devoted to um, community activities and retail and gathering and you know what a, what a community area is really intended for. Um, and in some of the sections, I can't recall exactly where, there's uh, eight categories uh, for public engagement sessions during the public engagement sessions that included uh, references to a roadway network and a pedestrian network, but there's no reference to a bicycle network. I find that really odd. Or for, for example, and we'll probably talk about this in the next agenda item tonight, but um, they refer to a bridge across the Kansas River, but they call it a pedestrian bridge. Well, it's a multimedia bridge, if we're a multimodal bridge, if we're going to build it, you know, that it's just odd that they're not even thinking and they're talking a lot about pedestrian, which is really good, but they're not thinking very much about bicycle transportation. I just find that very odd. So I wanted to bring that up here tonight at this body. But yeah, I, I should submit some comments to the website. So thanks for your time. Thanks, Michael. Any other comments? All right, Amy, I'd like to thank you for being here tonight and talking about the master plan and uh, providing those dates in terms of the extended uh, public comment that that's helpful to know that and to, uh, to be able to take a, another look at that master plan and submit comments. So thank you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. All right, we'll move on to the next agenda item, which is a um, uh, presentation from Riverfront and Center Group. Yeah, this is David Cronin, the engineer. Um, so we- uh, 
Recently, staff received a presentation uh, from this from this uh, Riverfront and Center group um, that has some ideas for uh, future uh, improvements downtown. And um, we have attached uh, to the memo some background information on the group and the members and um, also some presentation slides. Um, so I believe um, Kent Williams is on the call and we're going to he was uh, going to provide a, um, a presentation, and I guess I would just ask if Steve or Kent or whoever wants to lead off, I'll just turn it over to, to one of you, and then we can uh, share the screen if needed. Okay. Um, thanks, Dave. This is Steve Evans, and um, I'm stepping out of my MMTC role at the moment, and... Uh, have magically become part of the River Sentin Riverfront and Center group. And uh, I will, uh, I'm just gonna spend a few minutes, um, you know, with how we got to here and what all this means, hopefully. But um, I'd ask everybody to just kind of kick your feet up. Um, we don't often get a chance to look at ideas and thinking um, like you're going to see tonight. Um, we're often in the weeds and uh, that can be, uh, I mean, that's our job, but um, I really appreciate the opportunity as does our team to um, show you some ideas that we have, uh, which started um, last fall sometime, I think. Um, most of you know that I live in North Lawrence and even before I moved out here, I went across the bridge a lot, um, biking and walking. And anybody that does that knows how frustrating it can be um, on Saturdays and Sundays when the levee's real busy and there's a lot of activity. So we thought, um, I thought I'd just get a group of people together that um, could talk just real simply about how can we get across the river? Can we hang something on the bridge, uh, whatever? And we met um, in the area by City Hall and the group included um, Michael Allman, Chris Tilden, Mike Myers, uh, myself, and Kent Williams. And uh, everybody chime in here if I'm missing anybody, but um, we started looking at where we were and the bells really started ringing. Like there's so much going on here beyond just getting a bridge across the river or even just completing the loop. And um, those things include the uh, historical pier associated with the hanging that took place in the 19th century. Um, certainly connections to city hall uh, the Bowersock area, the Abe and Jake's area. And, and Kent's got some really great slides on just the cultural aspects of this area. And I really want everybody to think along the way in terms of the cultural part of this. Uh, we oftentimes get tasked with how do we get from point A to point B? And that's part of what we're going to be showing you, but why do we want to go from point A maybe to point 
some other point in between that may not be a direct, you know, logical connection. There may be a reason to put the loop in a different location based on the cultural amenities and the future of this area in Lawrence. So we, um, we just started thinking, golly, let's put a group together. And, um, and uh, our group includes um, um, architects, designers, advocates, uh, people that know the history of Lawrence well and have lived here a long time. And Kent and I are, are relatively new and people like Michael and Chris and Mike Myers um, have, have made comments. Oh, well, we thought about that 10 years ago, <laughs> you know? And so some of this stuff is not just jumping out at us right now. Some of these things have evolved, gone to sleep, and we're trying to bring them back into focus. Um, the, um, we um, started meeting with just stakeholders and early on, um, uh, as a citizen group, we just thought, let's go for it and let's see who we should talk to. We've talked with, these are just a few of the groups and people we've talked to, just to get input, to let them know what we're up to and what we're thinking, and to show them the presentation as it has evolved over the last several months. One of the first uh, persons we talked to was Pauline Sharp, who is the um, the um, Kanza um, uh, tribe leader, who is um, dealing with the city quite a bit in terms of the uh, sacred stone and what's going on there. Uh, we've met a couple of times with Kerry Altenburn, um, NAACP among other groups, and heavily involved in the hanging memorial that's happening in this area. Um, we've met with the uh, business owners at Abe and Jake's and Bowersock and had some really fun and lively conversations with them about, about this stuff. And in February, as Dave said, we had a Zoom call with, um, uh, I think it was almost 15 city staff that included Jake, Dave, um, um, people from Park and Rec, and um, people from the from the city manager's office. And we kicked that meeting off similar to how we're doing tonight by saying, this is the time to dream and think big. Um, we're professionals. We know that to make some of this, any of this happen is gonna take, um, you know, CIP discussions. Uh, we've been encouraged by folks commenting on how grants, you know, 40, $50 million grants could come into play with some of the things that, um, some of the ideas that we have. But we did have a, a really good meeting with city staff in February. And I'm glad that Mark Hecker is with us tonight. Um, Mark was designated our staff contact and we've been keeping close contact with Mark throughout this process. Uh, we've met with, um, the Lawrence Association of Neighborhoods. Uh, just a few weeks ago, Michael and Kent uh, had a nice meeting with them. And we've actually met with all five of the city commissioners on separate occasions. So we've really 
we've really kind of been around the world in the city with with showing um, showing this information. And um, before I pass the baton over to the others in our group, I want to make everybody aware that this is a pro bono effort, and um, it's provided to the city of Lawrence to do whatever they want to do with it. Um, we don't have a stop date. Um, we're going to continue to do things like we're doing tonight and, you know, working with the city manager's office and city staff and Mark uh, in terms of how our group can keep moving this forward um, with a pro bono effort or perhaps some other uh, something subsequent to that down the road. So um, that's my that's my intro. And um, uh, I think most everybody knows uh, Chris and Michael and Mike. Um, and uh, you'll get to know Kent Williams uh, very well in about the next hour or so. But I do want to give um, um, Chris and Michael and Mark uh, the opportunity to uh, just say a few things that are on your mind and what this means to you uh, before we hand it over to Kent. So, Chris. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Uh, I'll just leave it and say that, you know, we've been talking about uh, the loop for a long time. They're with the downtown master plan uh, coming to fruition, uh, potentially federal funding in the way of infrastructure. I think that the timing is really right for this kind of discussion. So I'm happy to be part of it. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Chris. Michael? Hi, Michael Allman. Um, I think I'll pass right now and reserve my comments till later if I could. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, okay. Mark, do you have any anything to introduce us to here? Uh, Mark Hecker, Assistant Director of Parks and Rec. No, not really. Uh, it's been a fun kind of process we've been going through because every time we meet with a different group, you get a little different take on what people are thinking and what they see. So. And, and I think Kent and Steve have done a good job of just morphing the, the presentation a little bit as we go through it. So it's been a fun process. Don't know where it's going to end, but it's kind of fun to play with. Well, thank you, Mark. Well, I will just uh, say very briefly that um, Kent is an architect and a public artist. Uh, his main practice has been in Wichita um, for several years, but he's recently uh, moved to Lawrence, lives in the Pinckney neighborhood. And um, I think we did send a link out. Um, if we haven't, um, I, I think it'd be good to, as you imagine some of this stuff, to see the work that Kent has done in the past. And um, we really want you to think big with us here and uh, have some fun with this. And... Um, Kent, I'll hand it over to you and feel free to introduce yourself to a greater extent than I did. <laughs> well, thank you, Steve. Um, and <clears throat> thank you all for your service uh, to Lawrence um, as exemplified by everything you've been discussing this evening. It's been interesting for me to, to, to be able to listen in to the, the breadth of what you're considering and I appreciate that consideration. And service. Um, so yeah, 
I'm, I've been in Pinckney for a couple of years. I've been on the, the periphery of Lawrence for 13 years um, up in Jefferson County, uh, commuting between a country place there and Wichita. Um, so in, in brief, the, I think what I have tried to bring to our team um, is some fresh eyes to some experienced eyes as far as how um, the rest of our Riverfront and Center team has has seen and and contributed um, over um, significantly greater time span than the 13 years I've been paying attention here. Uh, but once I really landed in the neighborhood and started getting a sense of Lawrence from the point of view of both the technical and the aesthetic opportunities that that places have, um, I'm not patterned to accept anything as normal um, because I haven't been here long enough for patterns to grab hold. So I see things um, and question them and then bounce those questions off of my team members. And the result is a series of big what ifs. Um, and the, the initial what if was how do we close the loop uh, and how do we give connectivity to things, especially uh, in this unique location where a major urban area is and its uh, fantastic downtown core is so very close to the river and the larger river corridor that is the Concert River Valley. Um, may, I, may I please share a screen, Dave, and start showing some things? Great. Well, <clears throat> here's a diagram of the loop that circumnavigates most of Lawrence proper. Um, and you can see how the area right around the 59 Highway Twin Bridges uh, over to approximately the Santa Fe Depot is, is in planning. Now, this is kind of the area where we really started looking and as Steve said, but with, a, with an eye on getting across the river. So our exploration really began with the Lawrence Loop, with the awareness of downtown, the area around City Hall, the green spaces and parks that further expand this area of consideration, um, the bike bed bridge to North Lawrence, or river access and community and culture. This slide shows the general area that we've, that we've been investigating. The augmented slide here <clears throat> shows a couple things that we've added more recently that weren't really a part of our original discovery of what ifs and, and that we want to bookmark these as important for a, a, a few reasons. Um, the two areas in blue just sort of represent arrival potentials where people touch down into the downtown area heading from north to south having crossed the river and the backdrop views in this larger lozenge of blue. The other two things that we're pointing out here is the 7th Street connectivity as, an op as, a, as a very viable option along the ground to again be another pathway of closing the loop. And then also here 
between Constant and Watson Parks, a connection uh, under the river, I'm sorry, under 6th Street. This is um, has some clock sensitivity potentially because there are uh, CIP major drainage projects happening in this area that um, sometimes give us an opportunity to say, hey, uh, is it possible to do one surgery instead of two surgeries by readjusting the timing of priorities and related possibilities? So here's a quick overview of what, what we really have done. <clears throat> this is looking at a little more focused part of our study area. And all of these paths pathways that we're looking at here are not what we're proposing. Um, this is really just a menu of opportunities that we've looked at enough to determine their general feasibility. Um, the major challenges that we addressed to ensure there was feasibility were, were things like head height underneath the twin bridges, things like appropriate grade separation to achieve a crossing of the rail corridor, etc. And I just want to give you this quick overview, and, and now we'll dive into how we got there. This slide shows the asset at the core of all of this is the Kaw River. This slide shows how the, the margins of that river, both riparian and, and other park and public space, uh, here in green, it, it's a significant asset of public land. Then, as you guys well know, the reality of how we function has this amazing web of infrastructure. And here we are laying over the sort of primary transit infrastructure asset, roads, primarily the vehicular component of how we move about. And this slide shows where there are major conflicts um, where people intersect with cars without safe passage, where train tracks intersect parkway without control. And, and I'm not saying that that's bad. Uh, it's, it simply is a conflict. And in some cases, uh, it's best to do nothing. In some cases, it's best to look at uh, the host of augmentation or adjustment possibility. Now, back to what Steve was mentioning earlier, once we really started looking, this, these are this is a short list of 18 things pointed out that are already happening that are assets that demonstrate vitality um, inertia in this area. And, and, and again, these are all wins. And this is why it's been so important to us to share this as, as broadly and sort of openly as possible to start engaging people that other others that have invested and thought about their, um, their area of preference or area of consideration or action in this area. This slide then takes those same sets of assets, some are technical, some are aesthetic and or cultural, and we start creating a matrix that sets up an area analysis that prioritizes and starts grouping the cultural assets that are in a place. And part of what I do as a public artist is I, I need to speak the language of engineering in order to infuse, um, or in order to have a seat at the table, frankly. Um, but what I really bring is an aesthetics language 
that works with that technical language so that we can get both. We can get a balance of technical solutions with cultural meaning, with humanity. This shows a quick overview of what we're going to jump right now for a moment into our, th our 3D model. So you can see in real time as we've been exploring this area and, and tools like this help everyone see things with fresh eyes because we're looking at this from 500 feet above. Now we're down to 250. And here we are looking, looking north. Um, twin bridges, obviously. We're floating roughly over 7th Street and Mass. And for a first look here, we're just going to circumnavigate the area and, and start noticing things we already know, uh, but we're looking at it in a little bit of a, a new way here. Again, all of these colored ribbons are potentials. We're not um, suggesting that 14 pathways need to happen, but we would like to see um, several of these be seriously considered as uh, major in major assets that pay extremely large dividends. So here we're looking back toward downtown, floating over Bircham Park. This is an interesting slide. We can sort of now start modulating our our area of consideration into three basic components. And here in front of us is the open space of Bircham Park, which is an interesting contrast to the heavily built uh, historic and latter-day structures and edges, starting with Bowersock, Abe and Jake's, followed by the riverfront development of the 80s. Lots of hard edges, lots of textures, lots of man-made, lots of history, um, and a very constrained rail corridor, which contrasting again to the Bircham Park, a very one-sided constraint, but otherwise open rail corridor. And of course, City Hall, almost in the middle of all of this. Here you look down and see the, the rail corridor slicing right through all of this. So all these fantastic east-west axes and north-south axes, not to mention the organic river axis. So here we zoom into the center area and we are at Robinson Park, which is um, so, as Steve mentioned, de dealing with um, the great efforts of the, the Caw Nation with Dave Lowenstein and a lot of energy is being thought about right now. What to do with, with the boulder? We call this segment here the big loop. It takes you to this central spiral, which we call the helix. So this helix unifies things over the, the vertical axis to a pedestrian bridge across and to a lower pathway that we call the powerhouse. It takes us around. And then the yellow, what we're looking at right here, we call the oxbow. And this is one of those ideas that's been around for the 
better part of 10 years, I think originally um, conceived by Mike Myers. He actually went out with old school survey gear and ensured that clearances are in fact um, doable, feasible at this location for this oxbow tuck under. And all we've really done is laid in what Mike had schematically designed nine or so years ago, including this potential lookout, which addresses this really unique space. It's as this space is really about airspace as much as it is um, landed space, because your views are set up and margined and sort of forced perspective by the twin bridges. I'm going to back out on this slide just a little bit, if I can. We call this yellow, I'm sorry, this orange path here, the wishbone. It does a couple things. It gets, it solves the critical grade separation problem by launching you from over here in the meadow of Bircham Park up and over the track, bringing you back down up toward Constant Park. And all of these green pathways, some of these already exist. They're just mixed-use or multi-use pathways that are in place now. But as far as the larger diagram we're looking at goes, all of the green indicates a pathway that is at grade and more or less in place. So now we're sort of flying through where things start getting built out and constrained. You see how, let me back out just a little bit again. Here our Oxbow takes you back up to 6th Street. And then it also peels off with this orange path, the City Hall path, which takes you between City Hall and this wonderful relic of grain storage silos of yesteryear, which I think is a fantastic example of adaptive reuse. Now this is really just a, a fantastic abutment wall, or I'm sorry, a, um, a land holder. And then we're showing here at this green line to the north of the train tracks. That's the thoroughfare that is there now. This dotted line that goes across the parking garage is, is indicating a lower level investment of parking spaces potentially to become multi-use path. This orange continuing past the city hall is what we call the narrow woods. There is enough room to go through this area until you get to the very eastern end where there would need to be a porting of the parking garage to safely get the bike path or multi-use path around that tight corner. You can see the, the green surface path here, meandering, and then reconnecting back over toward the final approach, getting you to the Santa Fe Depot. Now we're gonna take a cruise along the backside of the big edge, the big edge being the hotel and the riverfront compound and we're showing, this is, a, I, I have to always explain here. I, I never 
put stock images of people having fun in the graphics that I create, um, unless it makes an ironic point. Um, this is what an area riverfront really should be because the potential is self-evident. Um, yet this area, um, affectionately called the promenade, um, it, it, it hurts my heart to see an area as uninviting as this one. And this is um, a result of decisions made a generation ago. Uh, the people that made these decisions aren't around to defend them. So I want to be sensitive to my critique of such choices. However, um, choices were made that did not give legitimate consideration to humans' access to the river, did not give legitimate consideration to what is important to, to the public. Um, these decisions were made based on bottom line return on someone's dollar investments. And then we get used to that and it becomes a normal thing in our built environment. So we've ported that. We're, we're daylighting what was a dead end schematically. And we had to do that to justify some of our favorite solutions in connecting the loop in ways that are a lot of fun, uh, like the like the powerhouse fly around. This takes you over the dam. This takes you around the powerhouse. This lands you at the former cul-de-sac of the promenade. And that made a lot of sense to us. And we showed that, but then we still had to say, but what, what if, what if we sliced through a contiguous space of hard edge without public access or permeability and surgically installed that. And I think uh, that's why I can justify showing people there in a rendering because with an, with an intervention like this, it isn't selling the idea of kids with, with balloons and parents with strollers. Uh, it would happen. It is a legitimate device versus a marketing only device. So here again, you see our helix with the connection across. We looked at multiple possibilities, and this was really just the one that sort of rose to the top for us. Uh, we looked at four or five different solutions getting to North Lawrence, and I think those are all probably still valid. But, but we really just wanted to show one favorite at this point. So we chose the one that engaged the central segment of the, of the project site. Uh, this view shows where people arriving, people, I mean, and these bridges are, they're wonderful structures in that they function technically. Um, they don't have a lot of aesthetic consideration, but they do amazing things technically. Thank goodness they have some very narrow pedestrian and bike crossing, unlike uh, the bridges um, downstream. Until you get to Kansas City, there is no pedestrian or bike amenity at um, DeSoto, etc. It is 100% vehicle only. Humans in cars have access. Humans without cars uh, simply do not. 
And then here we pull back again to see this host of opportunity again. And, and then I'm going to pull back to how this breaks down. Uh, so we start looking at this large project site and we start saying, well, gosh, here's, here's 18 different possible pathways that we really can break down into seven or eight segments. And each of those becomes a manageable size problem technically. Now, I'm going to take a quick shift back to, to the, the cultural side. We know we can solve these problems technically. We're really good at that. What we're not really good at doing is infusing solutions for our tougher social, environmental, and historical issues and questions of the present. And these things are boiling to the surface in ways now that uh, the opportunity to conjoin technical and aesthetic problem solving um, it's, it, I've never been more excited about the opportunities because people are aware of the complexity of, of both sides of the formula and are hungry for solutions more on the cultural side because we've just sort of taken for granted the power of the technical solution. So I am an advocate for the engagement of art <clears throat> and education, storytelling, etc. with uh, best engineering solutions. What this does is it creates unique solutions that ought not only check all the boxes technically, but they create very positive, memorable experiences that, that reinforce fabric of community because we then collectively have these experiences as citizens with proximity. And then we are the host to sharing these experiences to the people that visit already and things like this enhance, uh, enhance the amount of tourism by significant factors. Uh, the Americans for the Arts has done studies pointing out where the return on dollars for these things um, is, it's truly unbelievable um, how these investments turn into uh, money into our tax coffers. So some of the key things culturally that have have risen to the top are all the things surrounding the indigenous voices, uh, case in point, the Shunganunga boulder. Uh, that ties into our larger history, uh, which is the foundation of our living culture. Um, and then let's, we keep coming back to the river, our ecology and, and the abundance that the natural resources are when we respect them. Uh, this is a short list uh, here at the bottom of types of destination projects that could be fused with every bite-sized piece of what we're proposing within the larger system. Uh, this upper line of photographs just sort of shows um, examples of similar built projects um, around the world. Uh, I won't get into detail on this now, but what we're doing, we're not reinventing the wheel here. Uh, we're really just looking at exposing the opportunities um, and the big what ifs, and then showing process, showing examples of where it's been realized, uh, and a little bit of how. Uh, this is a diagram I use to explain how culture and context marry with engineering and feasibility and budget. Um, there's a synthesis there where we build a team of aesthetic and technical professionals. And the real drivers are, um, 
our networks of public, private, and foundation stewards. Uh, and then a couple case studies. Here is a, a case study that's about 12 years old in the making. Um, this is uh, the Confluence Project. It's along the Columbia River. It's served by both uh, Washington State and Oregon State agencies and private sector foundations. Um, each of these communities are nodes along the Columbia River, um, and none of them have the vitality of Lawrence. Um, they don't. Uh, they, they're, they're wonderful communities, but you have to go 10 miles off this map to get to Portland, just to give you a point of view of, of the relevance. Uh, here's one example of six projects along that Columbia River project. Uh, this is John Paul Jones, Lillian Pitt, and Maya Lynn's Vancouver Land Bridge, uh, and that's Vancouver, South Washington. The similarity of this was germane to our project as we keep talking about well, the original part of this was closing the loop and crossing the Kaw River. Um, as John Paul Jones says here, the, the land bridge is a real link connecting back to the Clinkton Trail, Lewis Clark, and the development of the Northwest. It completes a circle uh, that had been broken. Could have just been, you know, a T-post bridge, <laughs> right? That technically would have solved the problem. Uh, but instead, when we engage a balance between the technical and the aesthetic, you get things that are destinations um, that resonate and, they, and that pay back. And this slide really just shows the abundance of, of, of wonderful that is already in this area. Uh, I love this slide here. <laughs> this... This pulp masher is like a hidden gem. Um, people that have lived in Lawrence for 10 times longer than I have uh, are sort of rediscovering this now when, I, when we show this to them. It, it just is, sometimes context is everything. And the context of this particular fantastic artifact limits its accessibility to any real audience. And not that there's not, there's something great about, you know, the magic of discovering something on your own without it being on a map. Um, so that certainly has value too, but I don't think that was its original intention. And again here, this, uh, this is an example of the abutment from, from the former bridge crossing the Kaw that is um, such a poignant element right for the picking uh, for the Hanging Memorial Project. How can we help that project go beyond a plaque and actually create a, a dynamic place where you engage that element to host a lookout where you can actually escape the context of the hustle and bustle around you and, and really visualize and, and feel the impact and participate in the healing process? Hey, I'm done with my part. <laughs> That's a quick overview of, of what we've been looking at. Um, did I miss anything, team members, from our typical share? 
that you'd like to fill in? Well, I think it'd be, uh, Michael, you had some stuff to fill in. Uh, I may have here in a second, but I, I would like to, uh, you know, get through our group quickly so we can get some feedback. Michael, are you out there? Uh, yeah, I'm here. You okay? Um, okay, I'll, I'll take this opportunity. Thank you. Uh, very nice, Kent. Very nice. I think your presentation gets better all the time. Um, now, now that you all have seen the slides that Kent has assembled, um, I just want you to kind of think of this in, in some terms that uh, we'll put it in a context. Like for, for millennia, humans have gravitated towards rivers and built their settlements along rivers. And Lawrence is no different. Kent frequently points out how the Kansas River is the principal asset of our city. Um, we, we really wouldn't survive here without that river. Um, and that's just, and that's beyond just being a water supply. So when we started working on the different aspects of this proposal, um, we thought in terms of, of it being a center, like that's, that's why part of the name refers to it as a center the center of that space between the bridges, the center of activity in downtown, the center of governance at City Hall. There's so many different ways that we can think of the center here and the river, of course, is one of the main ones. So we started thinking in terms of all those aspects and the connectivity between them. And that's really what so many of these, these different uh, elements reflect, the connectivity to the river connectivity to downtown, multimodal connectivity, whether pedestrian or bicycle connectivity, connectivity from the loop to downtown, to adjoining neighborhoods, across the river to downtown north, downtown north being the area where Johnny's is, for example, that's technically, legally, as far as the planning department is concerned, that's, down, that's downtown as well. So it's a connectivity with the cultural aspects, the multiple green spaces, um, both east and west and north and south. That's kind of what we've, we've focused on. Um, but more specifically, when we think of the loop, and, and none of this discussion could take place without considering the loop because it's coming through here one way or another, but unlike other areas of the Lawrence Loop, which are primarily in outlying areas of Lawrence, big wide open tree and field filled areas, this part of the loop is, is unique in its characteristic of being in a congested urban area. It's gonna serve a very different purpose when it comes through here. So that's why we've come up with so many different options because we have to thread that needle that not only acknowledges that 
the loop is going to function not as a thoroughfare so much as a connection. Uh, if it takes the route along the promenade, for example, it's going to be intermingled with the pedestrian activity on the promenade, the pedestrian activity at Abe and Jake's. They're, they're just now engaged in building that connection, that recreation area with river access. Uh, people can't be, um, touring bicyclists aren't going to be able to go along this promenade at 35 miles an hour. It's just not going to not going to, you know, not going to work. So we might consider how that is one option. And then there's a secondary, you know, like think of it as when a highway comes through a city, there's the circumferential route speedway around the city. And then there's the business route, the slow route, the route that has access right through the city. So we may want to build two kinds of loops two kinds of connections. Um, so I just wanted to mention, you know, that we have to look at this in so many different layers, cultural, uh, functional, transportation, um, access to the river, all these different ways, and try to, try to fit all the different parts of the puzzle together. Um, so I hope that all that resonated and that you can see the different um, different perspectives on what we're trying to do here. Thank you, Michael. That was, that was great. Uh, Chris, do you have anything to chime in with at this stage? Um, I guess the only other thing I would add um, in terms of thinking about context, um, I noted that the first presentation of the proposed capital improvement plan is on uh, the agenda for the city commission tomorrow evening. Uh, kudos to Parks and Recreation and Mr. Hecker, who I think was um, very much involved in proposing that downtown sections of the loop be included in the CIP and uh, those look to be funded, which is awesome. Um, the alignment study of a couple of years ago, I know that kind of the, the uh, preferred option is was the green alignment down along the railroad track, which I think at this point has been kind of ruled out as a feasible option. Uh, so I imagine one discussion, given the complexity of the planning, uh, might be ensuring that in part of, uh, in the budget process, that there is both time and room uh, to kind of envision what what step one would be. You know, like Michael said, I could I would love to see and could envision us um, maybe not building out this entire network, but uh, multiple pieces of this network in the future. But as a first step, it would be great for us to think about how we can uh, build. You know, in the next couple of years, that first section of the loop that gets folks to and through downtown. Well, I think I'm going to defer um, to Pat and, and the commission at this stage. And um, we can, uh, uh, you know, hear from you guys and uh, 
If there's any public comment, we'd be happy to hear that too. Hey, this is Commissioner Klatt. Um, thanks so much for that presentation. It's, uh, it was fun to, to look at the uh, materials that, that we got in advance of the meeting, but uh, even more exciting to see the, see the, the uh, presentation with uh, the multiple views of the, the site. That's a, something that you don't get all the time in terms of being able to see it uh, from a lot of different angles and uh, really get a sense of what, what, it, uh, what it feels like. And I think the other thing for me was just understanding a little bit more um, the multiple routes that, you know, not necessarily proposing all of those, but that as, as different options and, you know, as a frequent user of the, of the loop and going, you know, through the, <laughs> through the, the different uh, uh, routes through, through downtown and through that area, it's really exciting to see uh, some possibilities there. Are there other um, questions or comments from commissioners? I guess one question I have, I guess, is you know you've talked about the you know the extensive engagement that process that you've had. Are there what are your thoughts about you know, kind of what the what some of the next steps will be, kind of the immediate next steps. Go ahead if you want to. I'll I'll chime in too. Okay, great. I'll take it. The, the quick answer I have is is I think the main next step would be to create a a hierarchy of the. Right now, we've got a bowl of. Uh, spaghetti pathways here and i think we need to start refining that with a preferred set of options um so that we're not looking at you know four five possibilities per segment but two or three which then starts giving us a little bit more of a realistic picture of of what what is the essential target for um an intervention like this and so coming up with a with a, a a little bit more distilled version of these pathways based on the feedback that that we get from from everyone that that has had a chance to see this and digest it because it does take a little while to digest this and say well boy you know um, this is my favorite this is the one I think this is the route or the two routes that I think is best and and I think an epiphany that I had after we'd been looking at this for a long time, and this speaks to what uh, Mike Allman was saying, is the, the initial idea was to close the circle, to, to close the big Lawrence loop, but now we're seeing what the real opportunity is, is to create big loop closure with a small loop itself, and that small loop is the loop that connects downtown to the river in a in an absolutely beautiful and seamless and unencumbered way. I would, um, I would add to that that, um, uh, uh, like we said in our intro, we don't really have a stop date, but I think you can see that the level of development we have now is a little beyond conceptual. And um, um, 
this is fun for us. Uh, and it's fun to imagine all of this. It's fun to engage people in the community. I do think we have a point where um, the city staff and the, and the city manager's office um, need to figure out what the next steps could be. And um, we've had discussions, like I said earlier, about grants and, you know, the materials that you would need to do big things. Like, Ken, if you could just stay on that view, for instance, um, you look at the helix and getting across the river. Well, what you see there, I mean, could be a work of art as it is now, but it could also be something that would be developed into literally a sculptural, um, imaginative uh, way to get from, you know, the river level up to the area around Robinson Park and downtown. And it's so visible on in coming into Lawrence and leaving Lawrence that that could actually be um, the identity for the city in the future. Just that little area right now, right there, um, going across the river. We didn't talk about it a lot, but we have the ability to um, develop small areas for, you know, standing, sitting, eating lunch, whatever, and gazing out on the river and really becoming engaged in the river. So I think, you know, the, the uh, imagination can go, you know, a million miles an hour with this. But I do think we're probably going to reach a point where, you know, the folks from the city uh, will need to reach out and let us know where they want us to take it from here. Um, and um, um, we hope to continue to do that. We really want to do that. Um, if I may add, this is Michael. Is that okay? Yes, please. Sure. Yes. Okay. Sure. okay. Um, I think, you know, when, this, when the city is addressing some sort of major undertaking, um, a development or a program of whatever, you know, they typically hire a consultant. And it seems to me, at least, that, you know, the, the, the detail of what we're talking about here is, is kind of beyond the, um, the Houseo Levine downtown master plan, um, other than them referencing it, which I think they should reference this. But there's so much more detail than that I think would be accommodated in that plan. I think it deserves to have its own consultant study to evaluate technically uh, budget-wise, um, all the various aspects of these different alignments. Maybe the Multimodal Transportation Commission could propose that MSO look into hiring a consultant. And, you know, this did remind me um, back in February when we did have our staff meeting, um, Craig Owens and Diane Stoddard and um, people from the city manager's office were um, were in that in that Zoom meeting, and when we 
spoke about dreaming and envisioning, um, Craig Owens made the comment that um, things like this happen a lot around the country because of citizens groups that get excited about an idea and bring it forward and develop it. And um, uh, that's what we're thinking and hoping too, that um, this can, um, you know, this, this is uh, something that um, has, has earned our focus, you know, whereas a downtown master plan, just by the nature of it, would be more general and, you know, a, a little higher level. But um, this is how, and Craig mentioned parks in Chicago and, you know, some specific things that happened um, because of citizen groups and advocacy groups that came, came forward and proposed stuff like this. And um, that's why I'm, I'm always like, let's find a big grant somewhere <laughs> and go get it and do some of this stuff. This Commissioner Collette, I think the, you know, the inclusion of the cultural and historic aspects of it to make it really exciting. When you look at the master plan, you know, I mean, they're proposing, you know, alternatives there were like an eight foot or 10 foot, um, um, you know, multi-use path along the side of the bridge of each of the bridges, you know, so this is, you know, the, the kinds of elements that are incorporated in this really, you know, take a, you know, really consider the historical aspects and cultural aspects. And I find it really, really interesting. And, you know, I think captures people's imagination. Well, I, I'm sure I won't do it justice, but um, we did have a meeting with the Friends of the Call. And um, I believe the director um, and Chris helped me out here, but um, Don Bueller is the river keeper and she's closely connected obviously with the river and has spent considerable time with, uh, with the Kansas tribe and looking at the history of the, of the river in a spiritual nature connected to, you know, the Native Americans in this area. And, um, uh, you know, I, 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 like I said, I can't do her justice, but to hear someone like that talk about um, how that can affect the very thing we're talking about, mm -hmm. um, literally, in terms of why you do things, the stories you tell, the history of the area that has been pretty unrecognized over the years. Um, I hate to admit it, the first time I was in Robinson Park uh, and I started coming to Lawrence in the 60s was about uh, last November. And I think one of the reasons I didn't want to get killed going across the streets is maybe one reason I didn't go over there. But if you go in that park, you'll, you'll feel the, the nature of the Native American uh, spirit that's in that location. And to hear somebody like Don Bueller talk about the river and their aspect of all of this really, it, it really blew me away totally. So uh, those are the kinds of things that are still evolving. You know, we have, you know, just a seed here 
but we have a seed of something that could be pretty incredible. Tom Allen, MMTC. Um, I think another good case study would be the 11th Street uh, Bridge Park project in DC. And I really I applaud the imagery. And I think that really helps us connect to um, the idea of the vision. Um, but as you're talking about uh, maybe like the next steps with grants and things like that, um, the the 11th Street Bridge Park project does a good job. I think it, I think there are four buckets that they break into. I think it's health, sustainability, equity, and economics. And so so maybe going from the designer lens to um, what those other new lenses could be, um, because then those could easily become tethered into these ideas of the grants and different things that are going on through those, right? So, you know, as we're talking about the arts, you know, you have NEA grants or um, I'm thinking of some of the other things that um, you could start to think about other areas of opportunity that are more at the urban scale or kind of like our, our, our river scale, right? Which would be the, the new decommissioning of the um, Evergy plant. Um, you know, I think you can start to also look into how some of these things could tie into um, uh, this area as well. So, it, so this area is just yet another catalyst in this area. Um, and, you know, something like that could open up to the civilian uh, conservation corps and some of these different things that are coming online. So um, um, those are my, my quick, quick thoughts on this, but uh, I, I like the design phases and I think that, um, again, the 11th Street Bridge Park Project um, created a good system of buckets that really, um, I think, uh, in a way, almost no longer is even about the design of the project, but those, those things that it's created around that. So thank you. Those are great points. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, that would be. Well, Pat, that would be a good answer to the next steps. Okay. How do right. we do this? How do we quit dreaming and make some of this happen? Yeah, look you for know? the look for the funding sources that yeah. move this forward. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for this uh, presentation tonight. It's been really informative, and um, you know, I hope that we can, um, you know see more about this in the in the future and see how we might be involved thank you pat and, and everybody steve and chris and michael and all of you for for making the presentation tonight appreciate it very welcome thanks for the opportunity thank you thank you too all right um we'll move on to uh staff to uh staff items uh, receive the update on the 2021 sidewalk improvement program. Uh, good evening, uh, commissioners. Uh, Jake Baldwin, engineering program manager for MSO. Um, I apologize uh, right at the start because this topic is not going to be quite as exciting as uh, exploring those different renderings on the loop. Um, but we do need to give you an update on our sidewalk improvement program and, and uh, briefly going through the, the text of the memo. Basically, uh, inspections happened earlier this year. And when we got into it, you know, conditions were worse than, than what was expected. Um, I think anecdotally, we knew that these priority routes that, you know, we worked out over the past year were going to be, you know, some of the worst ones we got into. Uh, but actually, in actuality, seeing the inspections, what we came to discover is, is a lot of these sidewalk segments uh, were really not good candidates for spot repairs, like our sidewalk improvement program has done in the previous two phases of the project. 
So what we're looking at is um, proceeding with kind of a two-pronged approach. And I, I guess I, before I get into that, um, I'll, I'll share screens here just to show you the map that was included. <clears throat> so uh, very briefly, the, the map you're seeing here is got red line segments and blue line segments. The, the blue line segments are going to represent um, sidewalk segments where um, staff views that repairs can still happen uh, uh, in line with what we've done in the past with the sidewalk improvement program and the sidewalk segments, you know, the line work in red is going to be sidewalk segments where we think we need to evaluate a little further to see if we need to completely reconstruct these sidewalk segments. Um, should we do a, a reconstruction, we're looking at being completely ADA compliant, which means we're really doing block-in to block-in sidewalks uh, versus that repair project where we're replacing single panels or two here, three there. Um, the red segments, are, again, are representing a sidewalk where we think we need to block-in to block-in. Um, this is beyond the, the scope of the sidewalk improvement program, so we'd have to, to look uh, for some, I guess, a, a different avenue of funding to tackle these. Um, and we would probably be looking at a, a resolution from the city commission dictating that uh, the sidewalk or the certain sidewalk segments need reconstruction and to proceed in that manner. Um, I guess the two last things I was going to mention is our, the memo states the notification letters were sent out at the end of May, and that has still not happened yet, um, waiting on a review from the city manager's office um, before we get those sent out. But I'm hoping to do that here very shortly. Um, we'll, we'll be sending basically a different letter to each of these groups, either telling them, hey, we're, we're looking at doing a re the repair project or it be your and what we we want to evaluate further for reconstruction. So to let people know what's going on, what the changes are, and what to expect. And then to further that communication, there's a, a virtual open house scheduled for Wednesday from four to six o'clock where I'll make a, a similar presentation to what I've done tonight and allow the public to come in and ask whatever questions they might have. And um, I guess with that, I'd be happy to take any questions you all have. Thank you, Speck, MMTC. Jake, sorry if I missed this. Um, are some of these sidewalks in brick sections? And if so, are we waiting for the results of the brick uh, task force before proceeding with this? Uh, Jake Baldwin, engineering program manager. No, there are no brick sidewalks here. Um, some of the sidewalk segments that we originally identified did have some brick in them, and we basically we took those out of the inspections as we found them. So okay. there, um, there may be a few brick properties in in some of these, but we would not be touching them with whatever program we've got here. Okay, so in that case, our, is the city basically waiting until the um, I guess brick task force has done its due diligence first? Yeah, Jake Bowen, MSO, yes, that's correct. We still need to wait on the, the BRIC policy group to come up with their policy standards and specifications. Okay, sounds good. Thanks for the update. Any other questions of Jake? Jake, just to reiterate, the blue sections are the, are the ones that will be going out to property owners. Is that is that what you said? Uh, Jake Baldwin, Senior Pro or Engineering Project Program Manager. Yes, the blue line segments are what we will be going forward with with a construction project of this year to repair sidewalks. Okay. And I would anticipate um, fall construction into probably next year because of the, uh, the the scope of that blue line work. What you're seeing there is probably twice as large as what we tackled last year in terms of just square footage repairs. Thank you.
other questions? What what do you anticipate? This is uh, Commissioner Collette. What do you anticipate uh, in terms of the red sections and uh, going, you know, getting a resolution from the commissioners with alternative funding? What is that? What would that look like? I mean, in, in terms of alternative funding. Jake Baldwin, Engineering Program Manager. Um, I, I think that's probably going to have to be part of the CIP process. I don't know if that was discussed in, in what has been presented or drafted here recently. Um, we, we do have the option, I think, this year of asking to use some of our funding that's been set aside. So I think there's a little over $2 million in the program this year. And completely rough estimate, I think about a million or a little over a million is going to be needed for this repair project. So that does leave kind of a, a gap there of, of money that won't be spent on repairs. And I think the idea may be to, to use some of that funding to identify and design some of these priority routes um, in hoping to achieve reconstruction possibly uh, next year after design is done. A lot of those details haven't really been worked out yet, but we would have to get engineering design on all those reconstruction segments to make sure they're going to be ADA compliant. And that's going to take some time, some effort, and again, some additional funding. Okay, thank you. Other questions of Jake? All right, thank you very much. Appreciate the update. Uh, let's move forward to commission items, uh, PTAC update. Well, we have both PTAC update and the Transit Redesign Committee update is the um, I'm not sure with, well, go ahead, uh, Nick, with the uh, PTAC update. Because hey, Nick, MMTC, um, I think what you saw is really what's the most important thing right now. So, um, that basically covers it for PTAC. But if you don't mind, I did have another commission item that has come up. Um, sure. So as most of you know at this point, the uh, 22, sorry, 2022 to 2026 CIP has been released as of, I think, last Friday or something. Um, pretty recently. And um, there's a whole slew of projects on there, a lot of which do actually apply to us. Um, what I was curious about, and I don't know if this is something that, you know, uh, staff on this call has in their power, but there was, um, there's a couple of projects that were unfunded, of course, um, including all of the resident request projects. And while there is generally a decent amount of transparency in terms of how different projects are scored and ranked, there wasn't really any transparency on why projects got rejected and the justification for that and how individual projects scored um, on a more granular basis. So for example, if something got a, a 36, I'm like, all right, well, on, on the more qualitative and subjective metrics, how did it actually score? Um, so I don't know, I, um, I think since a lot of the resident request projects were bike paths, um, a lot of them by Michael Allman, um, I think that does kind of intersect with what we do here. So um, I guess it, if it's possible, um, Dave, I don't know if you were involved in any of the grading or scoring, if that was all in the finance department, but um, I mean, if you have any initial comments, I'd be curious on your thoughts. And I, I think we did cover a decent amount of this at the last meeting. Um, there was some kind of spreadsheet that indicated why uh, certain proposed projects on the NMPPP weren't included, but um, no. That's in the scoring overall. Yeah, Dave Cronin, city engineer, <clears throat> um, wasn't involved in all of the scoring for all of the projects and all of the different categories, but um, 
Um, overall, th th I think the scores were used as a guideline to develop the five-year CIP, and I would, uh, with you know, I would wait till it gets presented tomorrow night, um, and if you have additional questions after the presentation, city commission meeting, then that would probably be more appropriate for um, um, the city manager's office or Danielle Bushcutter in finance. Makes sense. Thanks. Thank you. Other commission items. Anyone else have anything? All right. Let's move on to the calendar. Uh, Dave Cronin, the engineer. Um, so for July, um, with the Dave, uh, July fourth being on a Sunday, the Monday, July. Fifth is a public holiday, so we've um, moved the meeting to Wednesday, July the 7th. So that's just one note, just as a reminder. Um, for the study session item, we were shooting to have the Your Turn Forum on equity. And then on the regular meeting, um, the Naismith 19th to 23rd Street field check plans for the sidewalk slash shared use path there on the east side of the street um, <clears throat> in august kind of put a placeholder for the bike security bike theft data discussion so i've discussed that with um, pd to get some uh, data on bike theft and see if we can have a conversation on that uh, for the study session in August. So those are the a couple of things that are coming up. And then as we're um, able to look back <clears throat> at, at um, reviewing uh, the earlier discussion tonight on the um, uh, adult crossing guard criteria, we'll um, pencil that in for July 7th uh, or August the 2nd, if not July. So, um, that is all I have on calendar. Thank you. Any questions for Dave? Um, Steve? Yeah, Dave. Um, the um, Your Turn Forum, um, Equity and Transportation Decision Making. Do you do you have some folks lined up for that? Um, what what are our plans for that? Um, Dave Cronin, City Engineer. We need to. Uh, get another meeting together with staff and um, get that lined up. So I do not have okay. a lineup today to present for that. Sounds good. Okay, other questions? All right, well, it looks like uh, we can entertain a motion for to adjourn. We can, we can stay on some more if you want. <laughs> Make MMTC a motion that we adjourn. Okay. And Steve, are you seconding that? Yes, I am seconding that. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, all in favor, just uh, raise your hands. I think we've established that we can do that. All right. Well, we'll see you all back on um, Wednesday, July 7th. Thanks so much. Thanks.
good good discussion tonight.